0: From the damp basements, from between the flash cuts invoking epileptic seizures, it is time for some Flick lap. Welcome back. My name is Curry or Curry or Curry, and my co-cult member is Hendrik. Hi, still here?
1: Awesome. How you been? Wavers. Since I started watching this film,
0: (laughs) well, it's different. It's different. I'll give it that.
1: You definitely see that this is the Halloween where there's, well, not major, but bigger studio was involved. Yeah, plenty of
0: people in the soup once again, or something like that, that we would say in in Finnish way. But as we know, there was a lot of people in the same mess trying to kind of invoke their own vision of what this movie is supposed to be. And it just turned out to be. A mess, even though they had much more time to figure this one out than the previous one. But anyway, it is what it is. Halloween 6, directed by Joe Chappelle, or is it Chappelle? You are the encyclopedia here. Who is Joe Chappelle?
1: Chappelle? Joe Chappelle? Chappelle? Yeah, well. Basically, is pretty much a complete nobody. Yeah, like yeah. Th- th- this is this is the weird time in Halloween franchise where they give the reins to practically a guy who has never done anything. Well, Halloween Six was produced by the Weinstein brothers, and with Halloween Six, Chapel would have made three movies in total for the Weinstein's. You know, we are we are in, with the steady hands of the guy who also directed Phantoms and The Skulls 2, the sequel to the movie The Skulls, who nobody saw and who, to which no one ever wanted to have a sequel. But how dare you? My
0: favorite movie.
1: I'm making the case you've never actually seen The Skulls. You are just, you know, <laughs> mixing it, you are con- confusing it with. With the Phantom
0: movie. Oh, I'm just playing with you. Okay. The movie is written by yet another Halloween fan. Like was the case for Halloween 4. This time it's Mr. Daniel Ferrand. And it totally shows throughout that it's written by a fan. Let me tell you why. Because... Maybe it's not the best idea to give uh, the green light for somebody to write a movie who is already a fan of the movie series. Because these people are always, it seems, looking for the deeper meanings behind the characters. So much so that they are kind of ruining the characters. Because they are taking the mystic out of them. Even more so here. And
1: completely so. To actually come to France rescue here. Really? And yeah, yep. Still, still. I'm, I'm still playing the devil's advocate here.
0: Ah, Devil's advocate section of this podcast. Go.
1: Yeah. So I'm not completely sure if it's really Ferrand who is in the end at the fault here. I mean, sure, the movie is kind of a mess and a complete clusterfuck, but... Then again, you come from Halloween 5, or that's, you know, the film you have to continue on. And yeah. we all remember where Halloween 5 left the franchise. Mm. It left it at a point
0: where there was no other option than to, for the following sequel, Halloween 6, to kind of justify all the randomness that happened in Halloween 5. And that's all that is that Halloween 6 is basically about, just... Trying to pick up the pieces and make something out of it. But we could get to my theory, what they could have done here instead of this clusterfuck.
1: They could have canceled the whole movie and just be like, the franchise yeah. is over.
0: Yeah, a god could have been in his, at his desk just trying to scribble some ideas together and say, fuck this film and let's reboot everything or better yet, just stop here and...
1: Admit that you don't have any ideas. Th- then again, this franchise has its own reboot coming up. I guess we've both o- already <laughs> seen how that went. So, <laughs> You're I mean, talking about I mean, Rob, Rob Zombie, Rob Zombie, Rob Zombie right. entry on this franchise, right? Definitely
0: should have uh, gotten the Nobel Peace Prize, Pulitzer Prize, Oscar Prize, everything in between. <laughs> but um. Yeah, Daniel Ferencz is not completely the one that is driving this uh, into uh, absurd chaos.
1: Now, th- uh, this is the, basically uh, Halloween seeks the starting point where the script have, uh, has to start is already a dumpster fire on its own merit. The question how much Ferencz himself was uh, kind of a, is responsible for all the nonsense in Halloween 6 comes down to how much fans had free reign when it came to the whole cult idea. Because e- even though Halloween 5 already ties into the Thorn thorncourt, once you see Halloween 6 through the whole Man in Black character which is introduced in, in part 5, the cult itself is not yet made clear in Halloween 5? Not at all.
0: Uh, There is the thorn symbol, so it's giving you something. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's so in background that I wouldn't count. Like, it's... Once again, with with Halloween 6, when you look at Halloween 5, then the thorn symbolism kind of comes to eye and makes sense to you. But if you would have Halloween 5 and then part 6 and six without any of the thorn cult nonsense. In that case, I would make the case that the Halloween 5's thorn symbolism would just be somewhere in the background and you wouldn't notice it. And maybe it wasn't even meant to be there to begin with. <clears throat> if you
0: look at Dan Farrand's script, the cult and thorn nonsense is all over it. That being said, the Probably, where some powers that be in the background as well, at least in the reshoots. That that's uh, as much as we know. That the end result, the Halloween sixty theatrical cut, is not quite the uh, what Daniel Farance wanted to be out. But uh, we can get to that, and we will. But uh, in the end, these two movies are really the same thing. It's just that the other one explains things a little. More to the T.
1: yeah, so to our listeners, there is infamously two different versions of the of Halloween Six. the first is the theatrical cut and the second is a uh, so called producer's cut and the and third is
0: uh, the third is a director's cut apparently um
1: yeah well, there there uh, is a- a- actually you know there is more versions of this goddamn film that there are pending court cases against harvey Weinstein. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the the third version Or, or let's say the director's cut <clears throat> I've seen just some small clips out of this Just some different shots And But um, something that was confusing me Is that somewhere on the interwebs There was uh, texts that, that said That there's the Halloween theatrical cut There's Halloween producer's cut uh, 95 minutes or so And then there is the director's cut 130 minutes or so. So that that, that, that I'm curious about. <laughs> is there still some freaking version of this film that somebody still hasn't bootlegged and we have to wait for the next 25 years for that
1: yeah. You, it, yeah is, there a, is there a second director's cut? Oh god. Because, yeah, yeah. Because like, like you, I have also seen the director's cut scenes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and even with those scenes, you know, it doesn't Bring it up to one hundred and thirty minutes. So, so maybe, no. there, maybe there would yet be another director's cut atop of the director's cut, <laughs> and none of those cuts actually make a good movie. No, like that—that—that like that, that is the most tragic case with Halloween Six. There is there is countless of countless versions of the film, and none of them are good.
0: Yeah, when I was a kid. I don't know, probably I was around 13 when I was full of this Halloween mania. And I was uh, on the early interwebs checking out some obscure pages for information about Halloween and then finding all this information about this different version the producers got and then looking at some shitty still images from a a 10th generation VHS bootleg And being like in awe, like, what is this? Oh my God, there's a completely different story here. How can I ever see this movie? It must be a wonderful epic (laughs) masterpiece. Maybe not like that, but uh, yeah, I was excited because there's so many alternative scenes. So I finally got it. I think years later online, I finally found it. Uh, The producers got. The quality is uh, horrible. But nowadays, fortunately, the, well, for, fortunately, the producer's cut is on Blu-ray, so you can see it in its all its glory.
1: Yeah, you can you can see all the plot holes in HD.
0: Yep, that's right. But that's a good like starting point to get you like a overview of uh, what the hell is going on with all the different uh, versions. Then and there are the uh, different script versions. <clears throat> so, apparently, the first known version of Halloween 6, the script, is written by uh, Phil Rosenberg. And this draft was uh, sent to Mustafa Akkad. He read it. He was apparently throwing it around his room and wasn't too happy about it. And uh, it reveals that the long-missing Myers is homeless and living in an alleyway and only to return for Haddonfield's celebration. His killing methods are really weird and uh, one of these apparently includes drowning a teenager with a beer bong and forcing a rat down someone's throat. But it gets even better. Uh, the most bizarre element is a VR Ouija program allowing users to see into hell which is used to reveal the Myers family were cursed by ancient gods during a Samhain festival. This is coming from ScreenRant.com. Yeah, that's uh, interesting.
1: Well, it's always good when uh, Hollywood goes with the direction that the VR technology allows you to see into hell. This was ahead of
0: its time. It was 94-ish, and they are talking about VR. Daniel Ferencz was then brought on board and you were saying in one of our episodes that uh, you must have been wondering what Samuel L. Espanol Lumis was saying when he got the script in his mail and read it. Well, I have the answer to you, more or less. Okay. Daniel Ferencz, at least himself, said that
1: Donald Pleasance was very fond of it. You mean this fucking script? This fucking script. Okay, okay. Because I I really can't see that happening. Like, no fucking way. No fucking way. I mean, I, yeah. I knew that Donald Pleasence was really old at the time when this was made, but s- still, you, you know, not, not even the most senile state could you be fond of this script. Yeah,
0: it was very fond of it, or quite fond of it. Anyway, it's pretty much the same.
1: Jesus. Like fine, fine, you are coming off from Halloween Five, but still, ju- just no, just no, not, not, not of this script. Yeah, I mean, how does it happen?
0: First, uh, Pleasant says that apparently Halloween Five is rubbish, and then he reads this script, w- it, which even more expands on the said rubbish. So, um, I'm lost. I'm yeah. Anyway, in other news, Daniel Harris's agent informed that in an agent news bulletin called Breakdowns, Halloween 6 was looking for an actor for the role of Jamie. Okay, first of all, why the hell are they looking for the actor? Because it's Daniel Harris. Anyway, uh, they were looking for somebody who is more than 18 years old. That was, I guess, the primary reason. Then again, why not contact Daniel Harris and kind of work it out? Uh, anyway, and Daniel was uh, reading it herself from this uh, bulletin, and it said, quote, Note, this role was originally played by Daniel Harris. See photo attached. Please submit actresses resembling Daniel Harris, end quote. So, pretty weird. And the agent called Paul Freeman and Mustafa God. They said, we need somebody over 15, so get her emancipated. So Danielle Harris uh, uh, had to go Before a court You have to prove to the judge that you're an adult So she went through all kinds of trouble She hired an attorney for a couple of thousand dollars to do it And had to go to court three or four times And Daniel then went to the meetings With the people associated with the film And she got a weird feeling uh, In other words They didn't seem to quite get it The series So First things she hears is that Jamie is impregnated by his uncle, and Daniel went back and forth with the crew about the differing opinions they had. She was offered around $800 to $1000 for a week of work. Uh, She already had paid about $3000 to $4000 to be able to actually do the movie. Uh, Paul Freeman and possibly Daniel Ferencz uh, were on her side they got Daniel to the phone and they appeared to beg for Daniel to stay in the project saying it's out of their hands their hands are tied and the woman probably like a another phone call, a woman on the other call said to Daniel your character is a scale character you die in the first act, we're not giving you any more money and uh, Daniel was like Well, I guess I mean nothing to you then. Okay. And so Daniel Harris was definitely out. Replaced by J.C. Brandy's performance, of course. J.C. Brandy said she got a lot of shit for playing Daniel's character in H6. But uh, Daniel Harris and J.C. Brandy are apparently good buddies. So Daniel Harris asked people to stop being so harsh for her friend. That seems to be the complete story of what happened. So, even before they got into shooting, it's already proving itself to be a shit show run by shit shows.
1: Yeah, so there is insism, there is mistreatment of the actors, and there is the brain dead idea of not contacting the actress that had previously played the part in the, in the previous films. Like, there, there are some telltale signs that. This is a Harvey Weinstein production. Yeah, I mean, wasn't there even
0: something about uh, Harvey Weinstein kind of being creepy towards Daniel, or am I just pulling this out of my bottom?
1: Well, they sure as fuck were creepy towards the actress who played the woman lead in this movie, Kara Marianne Hagen. Yeah? Who got a lot of feedback for her physical presence from the producers oh yeah apparently she was too thin and her chin was not to their liking making her to be too self-conscious about herself and her physical appearance during the shooting leading her to try to actually hide her chin throughout the movie really? yeah oh god I mean, she was she was
0: really good. She did a really good job, I think, in this movie. She she is, It's sad that uh, I think she hasn't done much else than Halloween Six and a bunch of some no name movies. I could be wrong, but she hasn't had a very big career. I think she did a fantastic job, and also uh, the actor of Danny's Strode, Devin Gardner is. Um, Devin is like a child in this movie. He is doing a freaking amazing job, especially in the end, screaming for mommy.
1: (laughs) But with that all, you know, taken care of, maybe we should finally open this episode's drink. Yeah, Yeah. let's do it. Since I'm way too happy to finally have a break from all that goddamn Miller, I have been forced to club down during this franchise.
0: I'm already missing Miller. I enjoyed it. It's like a Corona, a soft alcohol, which which happens to suit me.
1: me. Meaning that it does most definitely not taste like you know, it or it does not have a taste. Fine. So just it's like too- Corona, which you have to take with that, you know, slice of lime because no. Corona itself doesn't taste anything. No, it's great.
0: Miller and Corona—they will beat Lapinkulta and Karhu any day.
1: You—you you know, I—I I can give you Lapinkulta, but God damn it, you do not go against Karhu. They are so sour.
0: I'm—it's like murdering your stomach.
1: This, this is the reason why you are in Poland.
0: Oh days. my God, Poland! It, Poland—it it, it makes the probably the best beers in the world. And <laughs> no, it's not Heineken. <laughs> it's not Heineken. It's these these Polish beers, they are some of them are really special because some of them have these added tastes. Like there can be uh, strawberry beer and maybe pineapple beer and there's all all kinds of different flavors. And uh, most of them are quite soft and and most I, of them are not
1: meant to be made made into beer. Uh,
0: well, I don't know how much you know about the local beers, but I, I think you would love the beers here.
1: I, I could per- believe that I could mix your your local beers and pina colada. <laughs> but
0: uh, today's drink is Wins Whiskey.
1: Yeah. Like, I- in case some of our listeners are still not on to us and our boozing during this podcast, we have a theme where we try to find a drink that is presented in each film we go through. And... <sighs> Unfortunately, ever since we got stuck with Halloween as a franchise, we have been drinking Budweiser and Miller in, here in this podcast. Not not counting Halloween, 4, where well, thank God coffee. there was a scene where they drank coffee. Yeah, and I I finally had a small break from American beer, <laughs> and and now there is a scene where Lumis and Vin share. Nice glass of unknown brand of whiskey. So I myself am packing a bottle of Canadian special oat. It's Canadian whiskey. It's. it's extremely cheap and so is this movie. So.
0: <laughs> Match made in heaven.
1: Yeah. It completely fits this piece of shit film.
0: Yeah. cling clang to how does it. how does the line go again? To old friends
1: and to new beginnings. To old friends and hopefully, hopefully, new beginnings. After we get this franchise done with. <laughs> well,
0: before we get to the actual movie, um, did you hear about Tarantino's Halloween Six?
1: I did hear rumors. Yes. Yeah. I, I kind of found mixing information like some sources say that Tarantino was really involved and really wanted to make the film and then again, at the same time, some sources say that Tarantino was just kind of a hanging with with Scott Siegel, who he was hoping that would direct the film and Tarantino himself was not really that interested about making Halloween Six but. Still, you know, wanted to show support to Scott Spiegel. Yeah, I
0: understood from this article that they were definitely going to do a movie a little bit in the same vein so that they would explain the man in black. But they would maybe try to bring this Halloween a little bit closer to the roots in style and atmosphere.
1: Which is kind of ironic seeing how bringing this movie back to its original roots of the franchise would kind of a completely demand that you remove the man in black. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of a clusterfuck of an idea. Yeah, like if, the, if there is like some elements seen in Halloween films that you could really point your finger at and say that that does not belong here its the whole concept of the man in black
0: it could have been interesting though because uh, quentin tarantino was already riding on his pulp fiction fame which was which was released in 94 and this became this came out in 95 halloween so it could have gotten some extra merit credit quality to it from it but uh, it didn't happen there were some uh, it just kind of fell apart uh, uh, little by little, I believe. There was this uh, shit show script and um, it kind of died down after that. And Quentin Tarantino just disappeared from the project.
1: Tarantino dire- making Halloween 6 could have made an interesting entry on his filmography. I give you that much, but yeah. I really don't see a good movie. With the man in black character, like you are now talking about, pretty much I guess, judging by the carnage seen at the end of Halloween Five, an immortal cop killing gunslinger in your Schleser franchise, like nope, nope. Like I said, you can point your finger and say that does not belong here.
0: Yeah, Halloween Six. It starts with uh, strobo light, lightnings, flash cuts. This nonsense that lasts for maybe four or five seconds of different flash cuts of different parts of the
1: movie. And it doesn't make any goddamn sense. But it does set a tone. Like, <laughs> it, it, it does yeah. create atmosphere. I, I even kind of uh, like the first seconds. And now we are talking about the theatrical cut here. uh, After this, we will get to the producer's cut, fret not our dear listeners, but we are spinning this off with the theatrical version, which does in fact open with just random flashcards from different parts of the film. And even though they make zero sense, I kind of like those few seconds.
0: So what we're up for is basically silly jump scares with this metallic sound effect in the background whenever something creepy happens, it sets down for flash-cut MTV-esque 95, mid-90s type of horror movie a little bit before The Scream.
1: Yeah, that it does. Although, once again, to play the devil's advocate here, not all the MTV elements in my mind are bad. Like some of them maybe are even you know the few highlights of this movie. I, I get to the I get to the case examples once we you know get further down with the plotline and the synopsis of this film and we get closer to those individual scenes. I find some things that I like more
0: in the theatrical cut, and I also find some things that I like more in the producer's cut. And already in my mind, I was editing this in my head and seeing what kind of things could be cutting from here and there and then mix it a little bit. And then, you know, if this would end up on Kare's cutting room floor, it would be a, like a hybrid
1: of these two. If it would end up my cutting room floor, it would be <laughs> the opening credits and the end credits.
0: <laughs> Some kind of uh, postmodern art. <laughs>
1: It it, it it still would, you know, even with my postmodern art project, I would make the case it would be a superior film. <laughs> well, I, yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: at least we wouldn't have all these problems that we have with Halloween 6. And
1: it would never get theatrical release. Exactly.
0: All right. So we finish with the epilepsy seizure and we go to the basement where all this thorn cold stuff is happening. So maybe we should get like a give like a brief synopsis of what the hell is going on in Halloween six. Is it you or me who goes to do this synopsis in general?
1: Okay, well I can at least, you know, try to give it a shot. And Push. then once I may make a complete Got the mess out of it. You can jump in and save the show. Broce. Okay, so basically, Halloween 6 The Curse of Michael my- is kind of a realistic and heartwarming coming of age story of Tommy Doyle, who was first seen as a child in Halloween 1. And this picks off years after Halloween 5. Tommy Doyle is now a young adult who has to kind of a find his way between love and surprisingly ending up as a single parent at the same time that he has to kind of a do this self-searching quest that presents him to new and weird religious ideas and then there is masked killer slashing up people somewhere along the lines that's basically halloween six
0: i'm too tempted to try my own version of this
1: Go ahead. In
0: 1989, Jamie Lloyd was abducted by the man in black with Michael Myers to an underground cult facility where she was to be impregnated by her uncle to deliver a child that would be used as Michael's final sacrifice to release the curse of Michael Myers from him to the next one, which would be Danny Strode.
1: Uh, 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 uh. You are are cheating there, my man. You are completely cheating. You are talking about the producer's cut and we are going through the theatrical release. (laughs) (laughs) Which does not have any of that backstory.
0: Uh, Well, uh, uh, other than the Danny stuff, uh, otherwise it holds up. It's just not so clearly explained in the
1: theatrical cut. It's not explained at all. So basically, you know, after after the epilepsy scene, the theatrical cut actually ends up or starts in a dimly lit basement where Jamie Lloyd is at the same time being kept as a prisoner and giving a birth to a random child. And it's, it's made clear that Jamie is being held prisoner in a dimly lit basement That immediately leads into a weird uh, satanistic cavern. Because, you know, this is one of those basements that also has satanistic caverns in them. You never actually find out how they got their hands on Jamie Lloyd. Like, it it just opens and Jamie is their prisoner. And already giving birth to someone's baby. And that's all the explanation you get for the whole whole scenario in theatrical cut.
0: You're right. It's not explained at all. You are kind of left to Mm. guess it out.
1: It's also never actually explained in this birthing scene, which starts the film that why the fuck are the scrubs helping Jamie at giving birth wearing the necessary protection to protect the baby from the germs while the whole giving the birth thing is happening in a wet cavern in a dingly lit cave. Like like <sighs> you, you are taking steps to protect the baby from the germs while giving birth at the place filled with germs and god knows what diseases and rats. So yeah but hey weird colour nonsense Now that you
0: mentioned it, that this movie, this theatrical cut, makes even more sense, even less sense than I remembered, excuse me, I think I was thinking that the father of the baby could have been the man in black, because this is the next male character that we see and is taking the baby away from Jamie. That's kind of the only connection that you have. I would never in my freaking mind think that it would be well, spoilers, Michael
1: Yeah, I actually would never even made the Man in Black connection, but now that you mention it, yeah the cinematography kind of uh, would suggest that mm-hmm. the Man in Black would be the father, simply by judging on how the paper is handled right after Jamie has given birth and how the camera follows and Jamie's kind of a reaction. Exactly. Like, of course, that's not the case. And as we later on see in the producer's cut, but you you still could make kind of that assumption simply by what you see in the theatrical release.
0: I think they could have just made this much more easier if they would have just shown Uncle Michael simply humping her niece in front of some <laughs> kind of droidian uh, nonsense temple background and candles. Then it would not leave you any shadow of a doubt. I mean, this movie is kind of doing the exposition a lot already. Perusers cut even more so. So, hell, why not just go... All the way with that.
1: Michael humping Jamie. We are getting back to this once we deal with the producer's cut.
0: Yeah, let's move on with the theatrical cut. So, apparently Halloween has been banned in some capacity since 1989 in Haddonfield. But inhabitants of Haddonfield want to normalize Halloween again. Uh, this is kind of where we go and how the Barry Sims radio host is related to all of it. Well, what do you think about Barry Sims? Well, what is Barry Sims' role here exactly? Is he just kind of there put as some kind of a plot device to to enable the main or the, some of the leading characters to kind of speak out their mind to somebody? Would this movie be any different without Barry Sims? At least there, there would be less of nonsense there. Hmm.
1: Well, in my mind, Barry Sims, as a character, Barry Sims does not work at all. Mm. Yeah. Like, the dude's completely insufferable. Granted, that was what they were clearly striving for in this movie. Like, Barry Sims was meant to be an unlikable asshole throughout the film. And that is what the character is, completely. But... Barry Sims does kind of a serve a purpose at the beginning of the film where the radio show that he hosts kind of a works as a plot device yeah. to introduce Danny Come to. and to tie some characters together. Like, basically, Barry Sims' radio show is needed so that first... Jamie can reach out. Danny can be introduced and Loomis will get back on the case of Michael Myers. That, yeah. is, the, that is where you need Barry Sim, Sims radio show. And I think that I, I actually quite liked those early scenes with the radio show and how they kind of uh, moved from one perspective to another like, this person is now listening to the radio show, got to the next scene with this person listening to the ra- same radio show, Cut to the next scene of Jamie calling into the radio show, Cut to the scene with Loomis hearing Jamie's call into the radio show. I liked that, how the radio show carried over into these scenes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Other than that, I... But when it comes to Barry Sims as a character, I just couldn't stomach the dude.
0: And imagine people are actually calling this guy.
1: Yeah. Harry Weinstein levels of attitude towards women. Yeah. Like, once again, you know, there are telltale signs that this is a Harvey Weinstein production.
0: (laughs) Barry Sims is played by Leo Gitter. Leo Gitter hasn't been doing a whole lot of things lately, but he's been playing uh, characters in Penny Dreadful. So, back to the dump sellers we go. Jamie Lloyd escapes with the help of the midwife, who is uh, known as
1: Mary, according to the script. And who clearly has read the script, seeing how she completely changes her stance when it comes to Jamie and the baby and the whole thorn coat. And kind of a right in the middle of things like five minutes ago you were helping jamie to give birth and handed the baby to the man in black and now immediately you have you have stolen the baby and you are freeing up jamie and giving the baby back to her what exactly is happening does the third count actually have the script locked in the cave
0: at the moment when the man in black was taking the baby there was really no chance for Mary to help Jamie, but when the baby was delivered back to Mary, I guess, for some reason, or maybe Mary got it from this temple stuff thingy and during the ceremony and just gave it to Jamie. Well, Anyway, Jamie gets the baby and uh, goes with the baby outside of this thorn-cold basement.
1: Which is so goddamn funny that even the nurse has, has to fight not to laugh when handing the baby to Jamie <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, you can clearly see the actress you know trying to hold back not to laugh <laughs> at that moment <laughs> uh, which, which clearly showed that at least one person in, in the cast of this film did read the script
0: <laughs>
1: Yeah, save your baby Oh, Jamie, can't. baby, I can't come with you.
0: Yeah, why? Because of the
1: plot. Why? Because Beca- the plot.
0: Because uh, when I was 13, 14 in that park, I always wondered why can't you just join Jamie? You seem like a semi-likeable character. Don't do stupid shit. But she does, and she gets yeah. so, she gets her head into a random spike that happens to be nicely on the wall.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, these creepy ass basements, they always have these random spikes hanging from the walls. Just for this purpose. Yeah. I really yeah, I really would have liked to have a chat with the architect that Indeed. made the plans for that basement. Like Yeah, what was the thought process? Like I have really nice I have just, you know, drawn this really nice creepy ass basement where lights doesn't work and something is missing. Oh, it's this random spike on the wall, right? <laughs> yep, there, nailed it.
0: It's like in the James Bond movies where it's like the villain's lair. They have completely mapped out and they have a spike for Michael so he can kill his opponents whenever needed. Yeah. There's no explanation for this spike even in the script. There just happens to be a spike on the wall <laughs> and, and and that's it. I have to wonder, like, they must have been scratching their heads At the set, like, okay, there's just a random spike. Okay, how do we design this? Okay, let's see. Let's just build a random spike, and that's it.
1: Yeah, the typical, I just work here, school of thought in filmmaking.
0: Yeah. All right, so Jamie runs to this truck that is apparently in front of, is it like a 7-Eleven there? Because the guy is having some
1: coffee from his mug or whatever it is. And, well, can't be, because as far as I've mapped out in my head where this opening scene is supposed to be happening, it should be the Smith's Grove mental asylum, right? Right. That, that's... Yeah. Jamie has been locked up in the basements of Smith's Grove. Right. <laughs> which just happens to have basements with weird satanistic caves in them Of course. Yeah, of course. So, if if that's the place, then there would be no logical reason to have a 7 Eleven right next to a mental asylum.
0: Yeah, that's true. But, uh, yeah, it is a script says that the guy is holding a 7 Eleven coffee mug. So, that's why I took it from there.
1: We are clearly dealing with a movie that makes a lot of sense. yeah yeah thank thank God for this bottle of whiskey I'm having here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, ga- I'm gonna need it. I, I have a sense of revelation that this is gonna become handy <laughs> making this episode.
0: Yeah so Jamie gets into the truck. the original driver the owner of the truck gets killed. his head gets twisted in a nasty way and Jamie takes off with the truck. she gets to a bus station. Tries to call 911, but of course the lines are out because of the severe storm, so for some reason she's still able to call the Barry Sims show and call out for Dr. Loomis for her help, which alerts Dr. Loomis, and Barry Sims declares that this person is clearly insane. Jamie hangs up the phone, goes to the bathroom, and uh, she's in one of the bathroom stalls, and Magically, in five seconds without a noise,
1: she's able to get out of the bathroom
0: back window and escape from Michael Myers.
1: Basically, the opening is the first time you hear the new version of the Halloween theme that was produced for this entry yeah, and I have to I have to go and make a note how much I fucking hate absolutely loathe the Halloween theme in this movie. And the goddamn cheap tunes that have somehow managed to creep into the background of the theme music. <laughs> you know, the thing about the soundtrack is that
0: it's so all over the place because, uh, well, it, it's in one way in producer's cut. It's maybe more aching a little bit to the more traditional side. But then in this MTV cut or the theatrical cut, as we know it, it's
1: more guitar driven and uh, whatever it is. Yeah. And it does not work at at all.
0: Yeah, and why are they... they, This guitar sounds horrible. I mean, they could have done it, at least if you're going to go with the guitar route and get kind of a... Give it a more rock, raw, rough sound, and not this softish 90s uh, pop rock type of flavor.
1: Yeah, if you want to be the MTV entry of the franchise, just You know, be honest and honestly be that. So, Jamie
0: drives and escapes Michael Myers, but gets bumped into a bunch of pumpkins on the side of the road, has to kind of end the driving, then has the genius idea to go into one of these barns, and is having a little bit of a, a game of tag with Michael. There is this absolutely hilarious shot at Michael inside the barn, so first Jamie goes inside the barn on one side of it, and then we see <laughs> Michael Myers on the other side of the barn. And he's just looking straight into another direction. It's like he just woke up in a barn. and like, What am I
1: doing here? Where's Jamie? But that that's the weird teleportation powers that pretty much every character seems to have in this movie and this franchise every now and then. Yeah, so Michael is... Uh, teleported to one
0: side of the barn and then Jamie steps on the hay and it makes this crackling noise all of a sudden or maybe something is underneath it and Michael teleports next to her and kills her immediately. Oh yes, and then there is the lightning teleportation.
1: Yep, But again, you know, the power of editing has been on Michael's side at least from the part four where it Completely saved Michael from being shot by Loomis at the gas station. This version has the more brutal using the farm equipment scene. Grabs her by
0: the throat, lifts her a little bit in the air, and then just crunches her against the farm equipment. Yeah, but isn't there like a butcher knife first involved, and then the farm equipment or...
1: You know, the producer's cut simply has stabbing.
0: And this is the exact reason why I wanted to watch them in separate days. And but I seem to be failing this episode already.
1: But this, this is such of a clusterfuck, actually, to follow all these versions of the film that it it actually it, it's a mental struggle to manage to hold the the structure of the film of each version in your head.
0: Yeah, Loomis is listening to the radio show. And to me, it appears like Loomis breaks the fourth wall. He says, not dead, just very much retired, and seems to look straight into the camera, at least as far as I can see.
1: Well, just in case you know that the audience have not yet re- understood that Loomis really is not dead. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, that, that's one of those, you know, plot points that you really have to make sure that your audience actually gets... You're right. You're right. Different generation. Yeah. I mean, what would have happened? You know, they could have actually thought that it was the ghost of Loomis that they saw on the screen. Yeah. And it was the ghost that did all of this. Well, it, it is it, it is the ghost of the first, first film that is still holding the franchise alive. So, you know, show some respect to the spirit powers.
0: And then we get to the most logical scene of the entire movie. You must agree with me. We get to the point where Dr. Wynne comes to Dr. Loomis's house to celebrate that he is going to quit as the chief administrator of the sanitarium and to inform Loomis that he wants him to be the replacement of himself. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, the, I, the, the dude who has been retired for years now already.
0: Du- Exactly. The dude that has been retired, maybe, uh, well, again, this is explained again in, in the other cut. There's more detail in that, but let's try to stick with the theatrical cut first. He has retired somewhere between 1989 to 1995, and he's happy with his current condition. Why Why would you go to Loomis' house to ask this clearly older gentleman, Clearly not in very good health to be the chief administrator of a sanitarium.
1: Are you now asking why did Dr. Wynn go to ask Sam Loomis yes. to, to be the administrator? Or why did the producers go ask Donald Pleasence to once again appear on the film? We could go with both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically the same goddamn question. Yeah. But I, I don't know, you know, I mean, in you did not really see that much of doctor wyn in halloween 1 mm. so you d- really didn't get that much of you know the relationship that Wynn had with loomis but right. in, in in halloween 6 they pretty much they make quite good work kind of a showing that Wynn and loomis have this warm friendly relationship between themselves so you know that could be one reason win wants to leave smith's crow to his friend who has shown that he is a capable doctor on his own right so if, if i would have to make excuses for win's decisions when it comes to hiring staff and choosing his his followers For his work, you know, that that would be the argument that I would make. For people who
0: are not aware, Dr. Wynne was first introduced in Halloween 1, in a way. He was just there on the screen for approximately 25 seconds. He is the guy that goes with uh, Dr. Loomis to the parking lot around in the sanitarium. And tells Loomis that, uh, for God's sakes, Michael Myers cannot drive a car. But he was doing very well last night. So, clearly a fan-written story. Like, bringing back throwaway characters in, uh, like, five installments later in the series. Yeah. Well, to Halloween 6's defense, they are at least trying somewhere. For example, Myers' house is next to an inner section, like it was in the original you could imagine that this place is exactly the same, but like four and five, this has been filmed mostly in Salt Lake City, Utah.
1: Well, at at least Michael Myers once again used to live in a goddamn house. <laughs> so, like that—that's a huge advancement from the last entry. I'm calling back to the Michael Myers mansion that we saw the last time. Oh yes, that. Yeah, I mean at. at this time, the Myers residence is pretty simple suburban house in- instead of that Gothic manor that we had the last time.
0: You know, this reminds me of something that would be also a fun little edit thing to do. To kind of do, like, a, let's say, a one and a half hour long story that includes the entire Halloween story. Let me expand on that a little bit. So, this fan-made edit by yours truly, maybe somewhere in the future, would explain everything, 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 everything about Michael Myers. So, we start with Halloween, we continue with Halloween 2. Michael Myers burns at the end of Halloween 2, so, therefore, he's taking a little bit of a piss break during Halloween 3. So, Halloween 3, he probably is nowhere to be seen. I cannot really justify that Michael Myers would be in it. Anyway, in Halloween 4, we give a scientific explanation why Michael Myers is still out there. So we would make the case that at the end of Halloween 2, the firemen came to the scene just in time to save Michael Myers at the end. So they had fire extinguishers, he was saved, he was just in a little bit of a coma... Okay, and then we move on to Halloween 5, and Halloween 6, and then Halloween 6 story is tied with the story of H2O, so it turns out that Laurie Strode has had a stroke, probably, and she has completely forgotten about her child, Jamie Lloyd, and apparently there was no car crash, Uh, Laurie Strode has just lied all along about the whole event, so... She was completely unharmed and just going by with the name of Carrie Tate somewhere in California. Then we get to resurrection and then we breach resurrection with uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween. So Michael Myers goes to a time machine and then we start the cycle all over again. And there's the Halloween 2. In some kind of a, <laughs> uh, I suppose some kind of a alternate reality is opened, and uh, therefore, Loris Road is played by somebody else here, and then we take Halloween two and combine it with Halloween 2018, and it's still <laughs> pending how we're going to exactly establish that.
1: You know, I I would actually love to be part of this this project of yours. Because a couple couple of scenes already comes to my mind that I would like to introduce also into this fan edit edit of yours. First one would be right right after Halloween 2, you know, when the fire department guys come off and come into the scene and, you know, just put down the fire on Michael Myers. And then there would be the scene into some random hospital, you know, where the doctors would be looking at Michael Myers and being like the dude's completely burned to the crisp and some asshole has shot his eyes out. So then they have to, you know, surgically replace Michael, Michael's eyes. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and there would be this really technical, you know, this ER shot or the whole scene where they are just chuckling between different set of eyes and seeing what fits based perfectly <laughs> on Michael's skull and... One of the doctors would be like, no, you know, we don't have the right kind of eyes. So please take mine and give them to Michael Myers. And they then they do that and they insert the doctor's eyes into Michael's head and he would be in recovery after the operation. And during that time, there would be some local carpenter, you know, hanging around at the exact same fucking hospital and he would teach Michael Myers some interior decoration. And house building, and then uh, during Halloween, uh, after Halloween 4, before Halloween 5, Michael would randomly (laughs) wake up at the hobo's cave, wander (laughs) back to Huddenfield, rebuild his fucking house so that there would be the Myers mansion, and go back to the cave. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> and then there would be, after Halloween 5, there would be a scene with the mayor of Haddonfield being like, God damn, Michael came here and has built this gigantic mansion into this po- property without the proper rights. So we have to actually turn down the whole Myers mansion and rebuild the normal suburban house. The lot. And, you know, I, 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 I can see this happening. It it would be a complete life story of Michael Myers.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. God, it would be fun to also explain all the different masks. (laughs) There was some suggestion in one other podcast that there must have been like a mask shop in the Halloween 4 cemetery. So when he's crawling (laughs) out out of this tomb, (laughs) he's just going on the side. There's this mask shop masks available he grabs another one and changes it and then goes out of the cave uh, before the explosion things like that
1: yeah yeah Uh, you know while Michael is recovering in the hobo's witch's cave the hobo looks at Michael's mask and is kind of like no this is shit throws (laughs) it away walks to Haddonfield to buy him a new mask and then just present to Michael like "Listen, listen son what I got you Here's your new mask, like. Yeah. are we taking this too seriously? No. Uh, no, co- no, I, 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 see a lot of potential here, <laughs> and, and and you could actually, you know, you you could, you could even justify the mask change between Halloween two and Halloween four. Oh, sure. Where the f- first time the mask changes, like Michael is coming back, like the doctors present Michael with the with the burnout mask from Halloween 2, which has miraculously survived alongside with Michael from the fire. Oh, yes. And and at the hospital, there is like this also, not only the carpenter, but also, also a lawyer who would come to Michael and said that, you know, William Shatner could actually, you know, sue you for copyright infringement if you, you keep using that mask. So may, maybe you should make some small alterations. And then there would be a scene of Michael watching a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation and getting fond of the character of Data and then just, you know, sculpting his new mask from, you know, the facial features of Data. And, you know, it all makes fucking sense. Yeah, man. Yeah, we should make this. Like, is it it too, too late to actually contact Jason Bloom and... You know, m- make a case that we have we have the idea for the next installment on the franchise.
0: Yeah, yeah, we could do much better. Like we could kind of keep it in the sp- spirit of Daniel F- Farhans and and uh, company, <laughs> kind of yeah, trying to tie all of the nonsense together. Yeah,
1: yeah, like, a- and it. you know, then in Halloween Six there could uh extended scene where win uh, Meets Loomis and is to Loomis. Like, I know you are retired and you are already too old to be my successor for leading the Smiths Grove, but it's, it, it's a shitty mental asylum. And Michael Myers has escaped like one or two times already, so nobody else wants to take the job. You know, could you please do me a solid and end your retirement so I can retire? so many possibilities (laughs) so many endless possibilities well
0: coming up just after my Halloween 3 ending remix
1: yeah, yeah, in theaters 2020
0: (laughs) well, where were we Myers House we're introduced to the father of the household uh, John Strode John Strode is made throughout the movie as unlikable character as humanly possible. So they definitely tried their best with that. I I enjoyed the breakfast scene. Probably the first scene that comes to my mind when I think about Halloween 6 is the breakfast scene. Because there's great acting there from Kara Strode, known as Marion Hagen.
1: Yeah, and you you know, when it comes to Bradford English who plays John Strode in this scene, and w- when it comes to the, you know, The pitch lap, you can clearly see that that was, you know, the scene where Harvey really gave some hand-on instructions on how to pull it off. You stay out of this. (laughs) 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 Now
0: that I look at it, there's also coffee on the table, so I have chosen my drinks for today very well. There's also what appears to be orange juice, or it could be
1: beer for John. Yeah, there is also, you know, stomach bomb, weird rat vomit and cockroaches smoothie. Ferrand is referencing Carpenter's The Fog from
0: 1980 with the line referring to a stomach pounder. I didn't know that. (laughs) It's apparently a protein milkshake. This is the famous Tim Strode's stomach pounder.
1: Yeah, famously known as the only pounding that anyone will get in that house. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I still don't know It's left as a mystery what it is It looks like it has It could have milk And cocoa
1: It it, it looks like something that I would it up after a hard night Drinking So,
0: and Danny is drawing the knife Against John This happens quite randomly And uh, for me it works Slightly better when there is None of the background work Happening for why Danny is doing this. He's just pulling the knife in one of his first moments when we see him.
1: Well, there is that weird sea sequence when Danny sees the man in black in his room holding a knife and telling Danny to kill... Oh, yeah, okay, sure. ...somebody. So... Well, well, you know, that that's basically all the explanation and... All the build-up you get to uh, to Danny holding a knife against John Strode. Yeah, In this cut, it's not very clearly explained why
0: Dr. Loomis returns to the sanitarium with Dr. Wynn. It kind of is. Well, Loomis hears the talking on the radio and based purely on that, apparently he's following Wynn.
1: Yeah, well, Loomis does hear Jamie's phone call in the, the radio station. Yeah. So, I i guess that's, you know, I, I my take always was that Loomis simply responded on Jamie asking for help. Meanwhile, Tommy has some
0: great powers and he's able to hear from the ...recording background where actually the, where the call was taking place. So he goes to the bus station to look for any clues regarding Jamie Lloyd. And of course, conveniently, nobody has seen the red marks on the floor. And of course, nobody has found the baby crying in the bathroom. It's quite convenient when you think, what was it like, seven hours had passed... Since the moment, and when
1: Tommy comes to the toilet again. Well, then again, you know, it is a past depot. So, you know, what What can you actually expect? Yeah. No, no, nobody uses those toilets and, you know, you are lucky if the cleanup crew visits it once a month. So.
0: Then we got to the moment when Dr. Wynn and Loomis get to the scene of where Jamie Lloyd has been kind of brutally murdered by the farm equipment and they see the mark of thorn burned to the hay for whatever reason can you imagine this scene is it the man in black or michael drawing some random signs on the hay while they leave any any place
1: well i i can somehow you know no matter which one it was it it, it could have been michael it could have been the man in black but still, I really would have actually, you know, for your fan edit of the film, I really want want you to add the scene where the person responsible first pours the gasoline on the hay, then lights it on fire and immediately puts it out so that the fire does not spread <laughs> and burn down the entire barn. Like, you know, that, that takes some, you know, really careful putting it off.
0: Yeah. yeah. So A
1: for effort.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you pour gasoline on this specific area in the hay, yeah, it would immediately catch fire. So that's out <laughs> of the yeah. question. It,
1: so. It's like uh, under a second, and the entire ball of hay would actually be engulfed in flames, and with that, the entire barn. So, yeah, I also don't get how the hell the symbol of Thor now mysteriously works as Michael's mark instead of half-eaten dogs like every other entry in this franchise. Yeah,
0: now somehow Dr. Loomis is very informed that this is his mark. He somehow knows it.
1: Maybe, you know, maybe Sam Loomis, while he was having that famous skin transfer done to his face to hide the burn scars, Somewhere in the hospital, managed to find a book about Gouds of Thorns and read that that's Michael's mark. If he would happen to work for Goud of Thorn or something like that, I have now
0: formed my explanation for the thorn mark in the hay.
1: They must okay. have had, like, a
0: probably a fire truck sized truck and then have a huge stamp in the back of the truck. And then drive with the truck into the hay and make the stamp very hot and
1: push it against the hay and leave the barn. But pushing really a hot stamp against you know dry hay would still make the hay catch fire. Yeah. It would still it would still burn. Yeah, that's like, like you 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 need something to immediately put down the fire like instantly like that. All right, so. It must be that when they press against the hay,
0: it makes the mark, and then immediately they sprinkle water
1: on it. Yeah, yeah, that that would pretty much be the only explanation. Which means that it has to be Michael and the man in black working together at that exact moment. Like Michael is driving the truck, and the man in black is with a water hose ready to hose the hay immediately.
0: Yeah, but it gets a little bit trickier here because there's still smoke coming out of the hay. And Dr. Wynn has gone to Dr. Loomis and with Dr. Loomis to Sanitarium and from Sanitarium to this scene. And it's still it's still having smoke.
1: So Michael must have a radio controllable fire truck. <laughs> so, so that he can radio control the fire truck while he's also holding the water hose like <laughs> fucking nailed it <laughs> but, but if if you want if you want a head, head scratching mystery from this movie try this one for a size yeah. so loomis has had a skin transfer done to himself to get rid of the burn scars fair enough but how the hell can actually loomis now grow a full beard Seeing that the beard now grows in places that previously actually were burnt and covered in burn scars, like skin transfer does not work like that. You, you can you can hide the scars, but but it's very uh, advanced skin craft. Yeah, like like maybe he got a uh, you know skin transplant from another dude exactly his age. It's the same same goddamn doctor who donated Michael his eyes. He's also like, please take this scalp off my cheek and give it to Dr. Loomis so that he can grow a full beard.
0: I have cracked this completely. (laughs) The the fireman who I'm still talking about this thorn symbol because I'm so... (laughs) Oh,
1: my fucking God.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at the frame and I just have to crack this thing. So the fireman they they have the fire truck, so they are able to make the mark, so they are part of the cult that's that that makes sense
1: why does it, well it w- doesn't why won't but... the cops interfere with this i mean they are- ba- basically cruising around a crime scene and most likely you know i i I actually need the image of this scene <laughs> Because I, I I need to find the exact location of Jamie's body because I would make the argument that if you would drive the fire truck during the daytime, you would actually end up cruising uh, on top of Jamie's body. <laughs> Except, yeah, yeah, my mistake. We are talking about the theatrical cut where she was impaired on the farm equipment and not stabbed.
0: And the farm equipment is not seen in this frame. That I'm looking at. Well,
1: well, yeah, they had to, of course, remove the farm equipment so that they can cruise around with the fire truck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the police are involved as well, perhaps.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that means the government is on this. <sighs> like, how deep does this go, man?
0: Wow, we're so- we're finding so
1: many plots here. We, we need Dr. Loomis spin-off movie which is su- just, you know, Sam Loomis fighting against the United States government trying to topple off, you know, the God of Thor that has infiltrated the upper echelons of power. Did you catch
0: the Beavis and Butthead reference? No, I did not. Yeah, apparently there's a Butthead reference when they are looking at the drawing of Danny. Tim says that in this weird voice. (laughs) I I think it's cool.
1: Was that a previous and Butthead reference? Yeah, apparently. Okay, because I just took that as a, you know, excuse to punch Tim in the face if I would ever meet the man. (laughs) But, you know, talking about the drawing, I really have to dip my hat for Kara Strode, who previous night had seen her son's drawing of the thorn symbol and on that scene, you can clearly see that the weird—my entire family is being mur- murdered by mysterious forces. Drawing on the other side, other side of the paper is is clearly visible. Yeah, through the paper. So Kara Strode basically could not have missed the other drawing by mistake. So it clearly had to be intentional, or. Something like that Kara is so used to her son drawing these weird, mysterious murder portraits that she just does not respond to it at in any level.
0: <laughs> yeah, she does a good performance, as I've said. and This is uh, the first movie of Paul Rudd. Uh, what do you think about his performance?
1: Well, I... Myself, I think that Halloween 6 must have worked as an audition tape for Paul Rudd in nailing the Ant-Man role, simply by judging by the small effort shown in here.
0: The script that he's working with makes him probably a a little bit kind of an annoying character. I'm not sure why this was needed. Uh, I remember that the original Tommy Doyle actor, Brian Andrews, from the first Halloween They tried to get him to this movie. They wanted to get him to this movie. But there comes this absurd part. Because Brian Andrews didn't have an agent, they were unable to get in touch with him.
1: What the hell does that mean? I don't know how it goes in Hollywood, Alec. I I have the impression that the whole finding actors and getting cast into a movie is entirely tied into the concept of having an agent like if you don't have agent nobody really does find you I'm, well... I'm not yeah i i'm not certain if that's really the case or if that's you know just what i've heard but well a- at least that's the official excuse for while paul Rudd was needed for this movie
0: yeah it sounds about as logical as the crew not being able to call Dick Warlock and get the Halloween 2 mask for Halloween 4
1: and instead making their own mask. Yep. Or them not being able to call Daniel Harris. Yep. Who in case actually had an agent. Only in Hollywood, I suppose. Yep. But yeah, but- when, when it comes to Paul Rudd and his perform- performance in Halloween 6, um... Uh, I I like I like about the fact that the movie at least on some level tries to handle the subject of mental trauma through Tommy's obsession with Michael and the movie makes a case that that kind of explains how Tommy Doyle and in that sense Paul Rudd acts in the movie but even with that in mind I have I think Paul Rudd's performance here is completely lackluster. Like he has this same emotionless stare and emotionless line delivery in everything he does throughout the film. I agree. And I just don't understand the choices that they have made with this
0: character. Well, firstly, he's made out to be this completely insane, creepy person. Which is not really what the original character was about, but okay, I can see that he has kind of lost his mind. All right, but then why emphasize this madness with the cringing and laughing at the end by the character when he's hitting Michael with the metal pipe? It's just weird.
1: I, I, I see. I see two arguments there. Uh, the first one. Would be, you know, considering Tommy being extremely creepy throughout the movie. I I would guess that what they were trying to do was show Tommy's trauma and his obsession of constantly following Michael and keeping tabs on everything related to Michael. Like his creepy behavior would be Tommy trying to surveillance on Myers' residence because he does not believe that Michael Myers is dead and he tries to be ready for Michael's return to Haddonfield. But the movie mishandles that point completely and it actually Tommy Doyle appears as a creepy stalker in this film. His surveillance of The Myers residence looks like him just perving on his next door neighbor.
0: To add to that creepiness, there is one really subtle moment where Tommy Doyle actually goes full on creepy. When Kara and Danny are taken to the Mrs. Blankenship boarding house where Tommy Doyle lives, they get to the computer of Tommy and they are looking at the thorn symbol on the computer screen at this time Kara is lowering head to look more closely to the monitor at this very time her hair is getting very close to Tommy, and at this moment Tommy is giving this very short subtle but pretty clear creepy look at Kara
1: yeah yeah Tommy clearly is sniffing yeah Kara's her, oh, on that moment.
0: Yeah, or maybe it's just Paul Rudd being creepy.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know because uh, basically, you know, everybody is fucking creepy in this movie, one way or the another. Yeah, yeah. But, right. but yeah, I, 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 I got that exact same thing. Yeah. In, in that scene, and you know, you tie that with the fact that the first time that Tommy's character is introduced. Well, well, the exact first time is through the radio show, but it's pretty soon shown that he is spying on we uh, via the camera in his room. So, you know, the perving aspect is introduced right away, and then there's all that hair sniffing. And there is even the fact that before Tommy starts to give his exposition on the third cult... He apparently took the time to light up like twenty candles in his room mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know it it just it, it just does not come together in any way or form. It tells to the audience that there
0: was more to it than you would first maybe think he's not only looking for Michael M- Myers, and in fact, that doesn't make any freaking sense. If he would want to look for Michael Myers, he would probably be looking around the sanitarium or kind of expand the search field a little bit instead of just the Karas window.
1: Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, keeping tabs on Michael's house or previous residence really at this point where the canon has taken the whole thing is it's really not what you would be supposed to do. Yeah, but then again, you know, to all, all the nonsense revolving around Michael, I also can't understand how the fuck does Haddonfield all of a sudden come into the conclusion that Michael Myers is dead, simply because he has not shown up in six years. I mean, in the canon of the theatrical version, everybody knows that Michael Myers escaped police custody at the end of Halloween 5. Yeah. That That's where the theatrical cut kind of leaves the situation. Yeah, after his escape, Michael just has not been around for six years and everybody thinks that he's dead. Yeah, during the thorn symbol
0: in the barn, well, it seems we're never getting out of this scene. But during this, the song by Brother Kane is playing. And this is also the song that is in the end credits. Also other songs by the band are playing, uh, I believe it's during the Barry Sims event in Haddonfield. I like the song. Uh, I think it has received some not-so-favorable comments, but uh, in fact, I have bought this album as a kid, simply because of this song. And um, I remember that I was kind of liking a few other songs on the album as well. I think it's a pretty solid rock song, very 90s, very, very, very.
1: 90 Spirit rock song. So tell me again how on earth you were not a Halloween Six fan as a kid. <laughs> well, it's just one song. Uh, uh, me, exactly my point. You know, you, you buy the album for simply one song which plays on Halloween Six. Yeah. Yeah. Like that 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 sounds like a fanboy to me. It's a fanboy
0: of the song. This particular song. Something clicked. It's not perfect, but I really like it. And the crunchy guitar. It's great. Even though somebody says that it's ripped off from uh, Alice in Chains, I don't care. It's a solid song. And the best part about uh, The Curse of Michael Myers, may I say. Are you calling the best scene already? Yes, end credits. I like one scene with, um, with uh, Paul Rudd when he comes to the hospital with the Stephen baby and asks for help because apparently the baby might be injured or might have suffered a little bit of a trauma in the hands of Jamie Lloyd truck. But uh, apparently the hospital staff is full of idiots. So instead of getting any kind of help, they are just calling the security. I mean, yeah, granted uh, he's shouting like a maniac, but it's about the child.
1: Yeah. But you know, I mean, it, it it's a hospital in Haddonfield. But clearly, they do not accept any patients who are somehow getting emotional about injured babies. This is kind of a throwback to Halloween,
0: too. I see the reference. Yeah. The careless Karen with her
1: babies. Uh, this, But uh, uh, then again, you know, on, on the same scene, it's good to notice that Good old Sam Loomis has still kept his old habit of hanging around random hospitals for no reason at all.
0: Yes, and again, this is the problem of the theatrical cut. Because that was always so out of place. Loomis is just standing in, hos- in a hospital. Well, granted, just moments prior we see that Jamie Lloyd has been found, and that's probably the reason that he is there. But why is he in the hospital lobby? And, well, it's just... Seems really random to bump up into Dr. Loomis
1: in this hospital. It it seems, uh, yeah, it, it kind of, a, well, the odds are really on your favor to bump up on Loomis in this hospital, even in the producer's cut, which gives an explanation why Loomis is there. Yeah. But it's even more bizarre in, here in theatrical cut where Loomis just, is hanging around in the hospital for no reason at all yeah this kind of
0: at first glance it seems very convenient as well but actually it's uh, again uh, it's good background checking from Daniel France you can definitely see that he is a fan so that he is uh, able to pull these kind of things together like uh, the family that adopted Laurie Strode the Strodes. they live now in the Myers house of this makes sense because it has been established in the first one that the Laurie Strode family is in the reality business.
1: Yeah, so of course you want to move into the house. Which once born the masked serial killer that went through Haddonfield and tried to stab Laurie Strode?
0: Well, imagine if you are the reality agent and you have trouble selling this house. You can probably score a pretty... Sweet deal for this house. Move into it. Then again, then again, if you' trying to make sense of everything, they have made some considerable changes to the house from its original look. Once again, yeah. We are left to assume that they have spent a shitload of money to repair that house.
1: Well, the mayor of Haddonfield once he ordered the Myers mansion to be torn down did no longer find the original blueprints for the Myers house and had to just hire in another contractor, another architect to kind of redesign the house. Yep. Still makes perfect sense. Totally. So Loomis goes creeping into
0: the destroyed Myers house <laughs> and he's having a cup of coffee. And,
1: yeah. yeah. Why is it... Yeah, once again, randomly, just breaking into other people's homes. Mrs. Trout, is everything all right? Everything
0: was all right before you came
1: along. (laughs) 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 Precisely. Uh, 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 Out of a sudden, Sam Loomis appears and he brought a jump scare with him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, the first Sam Loomis jump scare, yeah. This is Sam Loomis's revenge after Halloween 1, when he's behind the bush and ambushed by Sheriff Meeker.
1: <laughs> yeah. All these years, Sam Loomis has just quietly paving his time when he too can pull off that stunt.
0: <laughs> oh. So he sits down with Mrs. Strode and there is this quote... Don't let your family suffer the same fate that Lori and her daughter suffered. Is this really in the theatrical cut? Yes, it is, because it's in my theatrical notes. Yeah. It is in... in Yeah, it is in theatrical cut. So what, what does this mean? Because now this quote is breaking the continuity of Halloween 4-5. Because, let's see. Don't let your family suffer the same fate that Lorian, her daughter suffered. Lori, as far as I'm aware was killed in the car accident and had nothing to do with Michael Myers. But now Dr. Loomis is establishing another possibility that it was actually Michael Myers that made the car crash happen or something.
1: Well, maybe Loomis is just trying to, you know, make the entire Haddonfield finally forgot Ben Tramer. (laughs) And whose fault was that? (laughs) Oh, oh.
0: Are you suggesting that Doctor Loomis has something to do with the death of Laurie Strode? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can imagine him with his pistol trying to shoot the tires of Laurie Strode's car, thinking that Michael Myers is inside it. Sheriff Meeker is still shouting,
1: "Don't shoot!" <laughs> 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 or, or maybe, or maybe Laurie Strode was just you know driving down the street and Sam Loomis had had. Creeped into the back seat, you know, <laughs> was hiding there, just waiting his time to, you know, to pull off the jump scare stunt on Laurie's throat and then Loomis just jumps from the back seat to scare Laurie, and Laurie gets really scared, and just the car <laughs> spins out of her control and flips over, and,
0: <laughs> and <Loomis laughs> so after
1: that, Loomis, Loomis quickly makes his escape from the crime scene. <laughs>
0: Next up is the pumpkin crush moment Uh, Tommy surprises, again creepily, Danny on the road Danny walking along the road is kind of supposed to be reminiscent of the first Halloween When Laurie Stroll is walking down the road and the Panaglide is gliding nicely So it's supposed to be some kind of a throwback In fact, if we talk about the script a little bit Danny Strode is being bullied by some kids during the same scene. So there is this another throwback now to Tommy Doyle. And then Tommy Doyle makes the pumpkin to break this time. Yeah, it's creepy.
1: Yeah, it's it's once again, you know, these old namestay characters from the franchise pulling off jump scares or new victims. Yeah, sorry. It's not just Loomis pulling this shit. Tommy Doyle is on it also. All from what I've gathered
0: is that the, basically everything that they say about the thorn here is incorrect. Because there is this some kind of an ancient symbol.
1: So in order to make an episode about Halloween 6, you actually went on full occultist and started to study weird sacrificial cults. Yeah. Like that. that's the dedication you get in this podcast.
0: This is probably by far the most... Workloaded episode. If you really want to dive into this, all these little nuances that the movie is putting out there, thorn is a letter, it's an old English, gothic, old Norse letter, and uh, also part of the modern Icelandic alphabet, apparently.
1: Well, you know, if you start to go on full college for Halloween six and it's Thorn and plot lines. Now, just in case, once we hit some kind of a movie dealing with Jack the Ripper mythos, and for that episode, you find yourself mysteriously stabbing prostitutes at the Polish night. Now, let me just give you already a heads up, you know, what you really need to do before the murder spree is start packing up on bleach. Well,
0: since we're talking about Poland... I always want to ask this from other Finns and everyone else. What is the first thing that comes to mind uh, of Poland for you? Witcher. Witcher. Okay. I mean,
1: what do you think is the general idea of Finns about Poles? Like, you know, my my knowledge of Poland is limited to Witcher and CD Projekt Red. Okay. Yeah,
0: I think the Finns generally don't have uh, much of an understanding about Poland or some kind of like a very formed idea of what this country is about.
1: Yeah, and now since gaming is once again on the rise, I think we will soon forget the whole Second World War. The the best
0: known thing about Finns that I hear from other countries is that they drink a lot of beer and vodka, which could be said about the Poles too, in fact.
1: Well, seeing how technically at this moment this podcast is made by a fin and a pole. <laughs> fake fake <laughs> I, pole. I, I would say that you know the ge- general uh, stereotype has has some merit on this case. Yeah,
0: yeah. I have a bit of an inside scoop here after living here for about it's almost three years, ladies and gentlemen. But to carry on with the podcast, there may be a throwback to the wood-powered laundry center from Halloween 1, which appeared to be not working, and then it's working again. Well, anyway. The laundry is rolling, apparently without a power. Well, it's not ever explained why the power is coming to the laundry machine, even though everything else is shut down. And this is also kind of made even more clear by John Strode, because he's really confused how this machine could be working at that time. Well, let's look past that, at least for now. Uh, Then we realized that uh, Michael Myers is actually doing some household work and he has been putting on the laundry machine to wash some clothes and they apparently are full of um, blood. So Michael thought that he would be kind of the good kid at least for five minutes for this Halloween night to clean up the laundry of Mrs. Strode.
1: Yeah, I mean, sorry for killing your wife and all, but hey. At least I did the laundry. Can can you imagine the headache that John Strode would have if, you know, he would come home after a hard day of drinking and would notice that not not only is is his wife dead, but also the goddamn sheets are once again covered in blood.
0: Michael is not much of a cook, it seems, but at least he did the laundry.
1: Well, at least, you know. God bless the man. Truly a saint.
0: And at this point, I just have to go to the script for a while. In the script, John comes home, sits on the sofa, sneers, flicks on the television with the remote control and settles back into his easy chair. And in this television, there's a scene from Halloween 3. A boy shreds his pumpkin mask as a mass of beetles and snakes pour out of his skull. And then we continue back to John. John says, what the hell is this shit? (laughs) (laughs) And then it continues, disgusted, he switches channels to the local news. A shrill beep from the kitchen startles him. The microwave. And uh, he goes to the microwave, um, and then he goes back to the television. And it continues, someone has switched it back to Halloween 3 when he just had previously switched it to another channel. A computer-generated pumpkin causes more masked heads to explode. John shakes the remote out of the corner of his eye. He catches a shadowy figure darting by in the darkened foyer. John says, Is that you, you little brat, Danny? And then John rises, about to go for him, when suddenly the power cuts out, and then the entire house is plunging into blackness. And John says, When I get my hands on you, kid, you're gonna wish you were never born! And then it continues pretty much as per
1: usual. So e- even the movie is trying to tell that the anthology road of Halloween 3 would have been preferable compared to Halloween 6. Oh, is it? I thought it was kind of the other way around. The Halloween <laughs> 6
0: g- gets a thumbs up here and fuck Halloween 3.
1: Well, that that's kind of a you know, high notion to be made by Halloween 6 of all movies. Yeah. So then Kara
0: loses Danny twice because she's a great mother of course and um, there is this moment where when Tommy says to Kara and Kara whatever you do and how would you complete that sentence? In my mind I'm already completing the sentence as don't fall asleep.
1: Don't come back for us
0: a sequel. Yeah. Which is Halloween Nightmare on Elm Street.
1: Well, it most definitely is not that, because the rights went to Carter and Weinsteins. <laughs> like, there was a possibility for that. Back at, back at the time when New Line was interested on the rights for Halloween franchise, but they lost the bidding war. <laughs> right. The Barry Sims
0: show starts in Haddonfield, and uh, Barry Sims gets killed. Uh, in this theatrical cut, gets killed apparently in his own van which kind of makes more sense we get to the producer's cut someday and we'll explain that as well but in both of these cuts there is this well this kid is not very okay there is uh, blood dripping from the tree and the kid keeps saying that it's raining red She doesn't understand that it's blood it doesn't make sense
1: well to her defense she's currently in halloween movie where a lot of fucking things doesn't make any sense. Too many people have read the script in this movie. Like, for example, Michael traveling from his house to the DJ's band to kill Paris Sims and then back to his house. Well,
0: I'm jumping again, but in the producer's cut, there's like a small scene where you can see Michael Myers just when Tim and his girlfriend get to the house. Michael Myers is already there, right? Yep. Yep. Wow, what a teleport. And then Michael Myers comes to terrorize people to the Blankenship residence. There is again this parallel that has been done God knows how many times already in this series. The parallel, or the throwback to Halloween 1 with the door slamming and Michael Myers chasing them before they get into the house when in the last second, this time, Dr. Sam Loomis opens the door for Kara. And of course this scene is Powered by the awesome Halloween guitar tune. Then immediately we get to Dr. Wynn's demonic voice. He can pull it off apparently in reality as well, not not just in Danny's dreams or his visions. So we heard this Danny, come to me. And uh, it gets uh, even more kind of exciting, I guess, when we are. Realizing that Missus Blankenship is also part of the cult, and Kara jumps out of the Doyle Blankenship, or is it Blankencamp? Window
1: Blankenship.
0: Yeah, I mean, Heather Lankenkamp and all, but um, there's this terrible cut from Kara falling down to Tommy and Loomis at the front yard after being drugged. Why did they not just continue with the scene where they wake up drugged or something? They just literally got from the falling down to the same place on the front porch or front yard, and they are there, now standing, and, oh, what's happening? It's uh, a yeah. bad editing. But, okay, but necessarily not bad editing per se, because um the script goes a little bit differently here. We can get to that later, perhaps. But, um... They probably just didn't shoot enough material for the editor to even make any freaking
1: sense out of this. So this is the choice that he had to work with. It does be- beg the question, why the hell did they not shoot the scene yeah. where Vin and his cronies actually do truck and Tommy? Well, as we have already noticed, uh, this production
0: has been epically flawed even maybe more so than Halloween 5. Then Loomis, of course, just to kind of drive the plot and narrative forwards, he knows exactly what is going on. He knows that it's his game, and I know where he wants to play it. Why? What? How do you know that? But why Why would Dr. Wind do that? Well, he apparently did, because they're still alive, but why to make it even more complicated for the cult? I mean, in the script... If I understood it correctly, it's making the case that Dr. Loomis and Tommy are dragged through the doors to the sanitarium at the same time when all the other posse are gathered to the sanitarium. So that makes more sense. So the cult is dragging them through the doors and I believe it's Dr. Wynn who is opening the doors with his sanitarium card which later Dr. Loomis snatches from Dr. Wynne later on.
1: But that's what you get, you know, when every single character in your movie has read the script. Goddamn.
0: Well, Loomis tracks down Wynne and goes to his office. We get this quote from uh, Dr. Wynne that Michael is, quote, pure, uncorrupted, ancient, end
1: quote. What? Well, I guess... Is trying to talk about the franchise but makes the classic mistake since the franchise sure as fuck ain't pure and uncorrupted at this point. True.
0: And continues with we're at the dawn of a new age, Sam. This is a pure Colonel Cochran moment of Halloween 6.
1: But then again, you know, once again, they basically, unlike in Cochran's case, they like basically would not be at the door of a new age in this uh, this time. Well, definitely not this time. Yeah, I I, I mean, Cochrane was trying to reach the new age by having a mass sacrifice through his bullshit masks.
0: Yeah, so here the sacrifice is to save people, but in Halloween three it's to kill as many people as possible or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- this is completely opposite scenario where the cult is actually trying to prevent the mass death of the entire tribe, which would mean that the new age would not start. Would the cult have have its way? Instead, the world would just continue same as before, same as the last night. And similarly,
0: it's left completely unexplained what it even means. Or maybe this is just a reference that it's a new age for um, Michael Myers, that he is finally freed from the curse and it's transported to, well, in theatrical cut, nobody that we would know of, but um, someone. Okay, but this, is, this whole transferring of the power is not explained in any way in the theatrical cut.
1: No, it, it's left completely open. God,
0: this is madness. I mean, the whole plot is madness, but then you even start cutting holes into the madness and you come up with a completely different kind of madness where you don't, you cannot read what the
1: madness is supposed to be about. Well, that pretty much is Halloween 6 for you. Uh, Enjoy. But, you know, to the film's defense, this is not exactly the first and only time that this has happened to a movie under Harvey Weinstein. Hmm. Like, Harvey was actually quite notorious for exactly this kind of a... Or before the whole Me Too campaign, Harvey was extremely notorious for his habit of groping the film reels. (laughs) Yeah. To a point where he was nicknamed as Harvey the Scissorhands. (laughs) Yeah.
0: The original script also kind of goes to this direction. Uh, the page says that Loomis confronts Win, who reveals he wants to control and study the power of Thorn. So there's also this kind of subplot aspect. He wants to study uh, and control the power of Thorn. Okay, all right, continuing. Wyn wants to Loomis to join in on his conspiracy and reveals that Jamie's baby represents a new cycle of Michael's evil that he kept secret from most of the cult who were focused on inflicting the curse onto a new child which is Danny to carry out a new trend of family sacrifices
1: yeah he kind of how has to study study how the whole ideology around which he has formed his own cult works <laughs> yeah that's yeah true. Well, hey, better late than never.
0: Yeah, there's that. He had like the foundation somehow. And then he kind of is trying to get to like, he's trying to get scientific with something that is not exactly very scientific.
1: He really wanted to have a cult. And then he found this thorn. And now he tries to figure out what it actually is. And what he's supposed to do with it.
0: I got it. I got it. Dr. Wynne has just received a degree from sciences in ancient religions and cults. And now he's working on his thesis. And he needs to do a scientific study for that. Unfortunately, because of the field of practice and the subject that he has uh, chosen for his point of study is so out there. And... So not controllable in the real world that all we can do is to call it pseudoscientific effort only for
1: Dr. Wynn to legitimize his bullshit called nonsense. So basically, this is an academic study of Dr. Wynn's that has been three decades in the making. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, slow guy. Yeah, well, you know, you need a strong foundation before you can actually, you know, hand in your thesis. And I should know I study in university. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, you have the edge on that. <laughs> because in Finland, for some reason, the university is considered something that is not necessarily important in your life. And I would beg to differ. Doctor Wynn, I can kind of feel your pain here. You're just trying so hard to make sense out of this nonsense for thirty years. And you just really want to graduate with some kind of papers. You finally <laughs> yeah. you try, but well, the story doesn't end if you actually graduate.
1: Well, anyway. Well, yeah, it, it, it's a shitty situation. Is you, Doctor Witt, really needs that degree so he can find any other job than you know being the head administration of Schmitzgro Asylum. Ah, oh, yeah, and that's how. That's the reason why he's retiring. <laughs>
0: In theatrical cut, there is the added crazy person in the maximum security ward with these beautiful teeth. And apparently
1: a stab wound in the stomach.
0: Yes, apparently. There's some really weird cutting that doesn't make any sense right there as well. The whole character is just, could
1: have been removed. Yeah, I never understood what the crazy person is supposed to kind of do. Except show us that it is still a mental asylum, I guess. But what what was the point of that character?
0: I don't know because to me it's just showing that Michael Myers is out there. But we already know that, and we also know that very well when Michael comes to the corridor when uh, Tommy Doyle is trying to get Carol Strode out of the
1: room. So yeah, I I don't know. It's once again nastiness for nastiness sake in this movie. Yeah.
0: Oh, indeed, the theatrical cut. In, in that one, she's just in this one mental world, uh, room. But in the producer's cut, it's nowhere to be seen. It's about uh, this. It's more centered on this cold shit. And here we cut to the infamous epilepsy operation scene. And still to this day, None of the versions of the movie, as far as we know, explain at all what this operation is about. But there apparently is an operation to make things even more convoluted. In this room, in the operation room, there's Dr. Wynn. And is the child
1: there? Are they operating on the child or about to operate on the child? If I remember correctly, the child or, you know, the baby is not there. For my understanding, Danny is not there either. Yes, that's my understanding. Yeah, even though I guess we did, you know, capture him back at the Mrs. Blankenship residence. Yeah, indeed,
0: they are operating or about to operate
1: on something
0: when Michael Myers gets to the operating room and just decides, out of completely unknown reasons, he botches up all the people. And in the next room, behind the door, Danny and the child, Stephen, are just looking out of the window. And in yet another room, Kara and Tommy are observing the situation. And they are able to observe both of these rooms. And when things go haywire, then Tommy and Kara grab the kids and start running out of the place. Yeah. Apparently the movie just needed some kind of a excuse to start the chase scene
1: yeah well you know that's my take on the whole subject <laughs> yeah
0: for these chase scenes George P. Wilbur he might be acting in some parts of the hospital but uh, some of the parts he is not because another dude was called in because director Joe Chappell decided that George P. Wilbur is way too bulky well, there is something finally that I can kind of agree with with Mr. Chapel Chapel, because he he is to, way too bulky. We saw that in Halloween Four, and um, well, in Halloween Four he also had these shoulder pads. Here I'm not so sure, but he uh, whoever it is in some of these scenes he looks kind of weird, like a very a different kind of bulky character. He's Arms are kind of away
1: from his body. It looks kind of funny. Anyway, well, it's hard for hard for me to say because at that time I was really trying to avoid looking at the screen since all the epilepsy was happening.
0: Yeah, even uh, I'm not known for any kind of epileptic seizures, but good good grief, it's really hard to watch that scene.
1: I mean, I I can you know just imagine how it must have felt, you know. To be in a movie theater seeing this one on big screen. I can imagine uh, the strobe effect being on full power
0: there and. Imagine the poor actors doing that scene, maybe repeatedly.
1: Well, uh, at least you know I, I can believe that the terror was real. Yeah, and then we open even
0: more plot points. We get to this room where there apparently are embryos. Of unfinished Michael Myers uh, replacement, maybe killers or something
1: like shit like that. It could be just, you know, random collection of embryos. I mean, I, you know, I can fully get behind that one. I mean, who wouldn't want his own collection of embryos?
0: Very reminiscent of Alien Resurrection. This always reminds me of the Alien Resurrection. This is two years older movie than Resurrection well we get to the epic pipe final of the theatrical cut, this whole final totally smells like something that was thought up in 5 minutes and probably there is no screenplay or storyboard for this sequence it looks like it was something that was put together right there and then well Michael Myers is uh, pumped up with green shit which is probably the answer why Michael Myers' brain is also leaking green shit when he's getting hit by the pipe. And that's my take on it. That's the reason. Because his blood has been replaced by green shit. I don't know how you can uh, kind of scientifically justify that, but um, it's a thorn. It's, it's still not studied completely. It's in the works by Dr. Wynn. We will have to wait for his study to know what happened. <laughs> yeah. And then the basically the movie has ended. I mean, uh, Loomis escapes with the gang from the sanitarium, Michael gets the pipe, and Loomis decides that he has some kind of unfinished business to do, decides to stay at the sanitarium, but the next shot do not explain what the unfinished business would have been.
1: Well, I, I guess it was just, you know, stand outside of the sanitarium and scream. <laughs> really fucking <laughs> loudly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I understand now. Because all of those years of pain that has been inflicted upon Donald <laughs> Plus' son Loomis, he just asks the Tommy Doll gang to get out of the, his, his sight so he can just <laughs> finally. Go like, (laughs) rawr! Explains it perfectly. And the final shot is with the pumpkin, and one shot before that, it's Michael Myers' mask lying on the floor, and with the uh, green shit needle, I suppose. One of them. One of the three. So it's uh, completely open to interpretation, what happened there. Actually, so much so up for interpretation that I have completely no idea how to put this one together in my head well he
1: just left his mask there and went
0: home maybe
1: maybe i i I mean i i guess what the movie is trying to hint is that the green shit maybe was some kind of a fucking horse tranquilizer or something like that which renders michael powerless enough that he can be finished off with simple steel pipe. And then he recovers super quickly and rises from the ground, no longer being bound by the horse tranquilizer and wanders outside and just kills off Loomis. I mean, maybe that's what where the movie was trying to go, but it really does not come through. Yeah, it's really confusing. We have already
0: covered so many confusing things that have been left unexplained. But then this ending, I can just imagine being in the theater and just shaking my head like, what? what, what? Just going home, very confused.
1: Or then, then you, you know, you would still be just shaking your head simply from the epileptic seizure. Half of the crowd suffering from <laughs>
0: epileptic seizures. So Chappelle in the back row, smiling silently.
1: <laughs> yeah, I fucking made it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Plan has come to fruition.
1: And this was uh, uh, simply the theatrical act. Like, we, we still had the <laughs> whole fucking producer's to go through.
0: Oh, God. Just to give my final thoughts on the ending, I believe what I was thinking when the movie ended was that uh, Sam Loomis went back to the hospital, saw that Michael Myers was nowhere to be seen, and he just disappeared into the night and Loomis was terrified or Loomis was terrified and Loomis was hurt by Michael
1: or then Loomis simply was screaming out of anger because after after hearing that Tommy was able to beat Michael with steel pipe, Loomis too wanted to go back in and just give Michael a few good swings with his cane and now he notices that Michael has left the building (laughs) Would I recommend the theatrical cut of Halloween Six? No, I'm, no. Yeah, same answer from here. Yeah, like, th- this is this is not worth your time at all. It's not, and
0: soon we will cover the infamous producer's cut that many teenage fans probably think as some kind of a holy grail of the series that finally saw the official release a few years ago, and that it's supposedly much better than this cut. Well, we will check that out right now.
1: Yeah, uh, my understanding is that it is it is the general consensus that the producer's cut would be the superior version of the film. Alas. There is some really big problems when it comes to the producer's cut some some really big
0: problems, really, okay, let's get to that. so th- this version is a slightly longer than the theatrical cut, but just by what was it like let's say six to seven, eight minutes longer but
1: the- somewhere ra- around that ballpark, park, like was it something like six and a half or yeah, like, was it like eighty eight and ninety five minutes respectively. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, the, something like that. The
0: theatrical cut is pretty short, in fact. Oh yeah, we haven't even talked about the TV version of this movie. There is also the TV version of this movie, which is the theatrical cut, but with some added scenes from the producer's cut to make the movie long enough to be shown in television in 1995. So uh, I think they included like two minutes, perhaps, of the. More material to accommodate. And I think it was 90 minutes long.
1: Yeah. So, so, yeah. Once again, Halloween 6 and the fucking endless versions of the film. Mm
0: -hmm. In this version, we start up again with Jamie screaming and being taken with the stretcher across the hallway in the druid underworld. But this time we are not getting the beautiful strobo effect. So uh, there is more cohesiveness in the producer's cut. The producer's cut is more cohesive in the bullshit world that it has built for itself.
1: Yeah, uh, at least, you know, one case, which is shown in the, right at the beginning of the film, is that the producer's cut actually explains how the hell Huddenfield can actually believe that Michael Myers is dead. It shows that there was an explosion produced at the sheriff's station in order to cover up the fact that Michael Myers had escaped and, or as it turns out, was kidnapped alongside with Jamie.
0: These are the kind of plot holes that you have in theatrical cut because somebody went crazy in the editing room and decided to do a a music video for Michael Jackson.
1: Then again, at the the same time, uh, this is the version where Michael Myers, the mysteriously and famously strong serial killer who can toss people around like they are paper objects, can be overcome by simply two persons who hijack Michael Myers and throw him inside the back of the van. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when, when they kidnap him from the sheriff station. <laughs> like, that that's all it takes, you know. Then you see Michael Myers with single hand, Stroking people and holding them up in the <laughs> air. Later on, this same goddamn movie. So. Okay, but in the producer's cut, uh, Michael
0: Myers is a little softer with his hands. Uh, let me give you the, an example. He's taken with two guys into the van, which is hilarious in itself. But later on, when Jamie escapes the underworld, she goes to the truck driver's car. In the producer's cut, I believe he doesn't rip his head off, like halfway, but it's just twisted around. So, he has lost some of his mystical powers in the producer's cut. It's a little bit more downplayed. Well, still doesn't save John Strode. The John Strode killing scene, I prefer the one in theatrical cut. (laughs) It's it's ridiculous, but somehow it works, and it's rewarding to see him explode,
1: because that's what he deserves. A theatrical cut has a exploding head. And that is always a good plus point for any killer scene. <laughs> yeah. and that, that is what makes it definitely the best kill of the theatrical cut, the exploding head. The producer's cut makes John Strode just a slightly less of an asshole. Like here, here, John gets that one redeeming line, which does not help much, but at least it's something.
0: This moment when Jamie's Scream is Cut off as the stranger descends upon her. This movement when the man in black comes to get Jamie in 1989 at the police station. He kind of glides into the frame in an interesting way. It always caught my attention. Well, now I heard that in the script it says that Jamie's scream is cut off as the stranger descends upon her like the angel of death. (laughs) So... That's that's what they're apparently trying to do there.
1: Well, it does not look anything like Angel of Death.
0: Yeah, it looks like <laughs> Man in Black on Rails. <laughs> <laughs> in the producer's cut, many of the scenes are played longer. For example, the Mary character, there's a little bit of the more of this chasing and waiting for Michael Myers to appear. In that sense, the theatrical cut is tighter. But not always in the best sense, because then it kind of cuts the plot points. But otherwise, yeah, what they're trying to do with producer's cut is more like the, I don't know, maybe the more like a classical facing of Halloween with some thorn shit added to it.
1: Yeah, I really don't know what on earth they were trying to do with producer's cut. There was like a
0: battle of the versions, theatrical cut, producer's cut. And finally, someone somewhere decided that they need to go with the theatrical cut in the end.
1: It was, if I remember correctly, it was Mustafa Akkad versus Weinstein's The Fight, where Mustafa wanted the producer's cut to be the one that has the theatrical release. And it went into a court battle at the end, and the judge... Finally decided the case for the Weinstein's. Yeah, re- did it really go to court? Jesus. Uh, as far as I know, they did.
0: Yeah. We can talk a little bit about the uh, script, I guess, uh, as well in during this. Uh, when Danny is having this nightmare, the nightmare scene is actually played out in the script. Uh, Danny wakes up. Tim is trying to calm down Danny. That uh, just, he's just saying something funny, and then Danny is. Kind of smiling again, Jon Strode is saying something rude like "What's wrong with this brat again?" Blah blah blah. The producer's cut scene with the Danny's nightmare it makes much more sense because we see how Cara Strode is trying more to comfort her child, whereas in the theatrical cut it's like it looks like he doesn't really care too much.
1: Th- then again, Cara's bedtime spell is once again cringy as fuck. Yeah. Go away, monsters, sir. what was the line? I'm trying to forget, actually. I, I, it's a small wonder why in every cut movie always these bedtime spells are this bad. The producer's cut also immediately establishes that Tommy is
0: Tommy. When Tommy says that he's Tommy to the radio station Barry Sims, in the theatrical cut it's cut, and it, then it just follows from there on. Uh, it's just a small change. Maybe there's nothing really to comment on that.
1: Like I said, I lo- I like how the radio show works as a segue from one scene to the next and that effect I think is more enhanced in the producer's cut yeah. where the scenes are slightly longer and they, but this way the segue effect I feel is stronger in the producer's cut. Dr. Woon comes to...
0: House of Loomis. The scene makes much more sense in the producer's cut. There is this comment about Dr. Loomis having plastic surgery. So, don't know what to think about that. At least the movie kind of explains why he is not
1: wearing this uh, this omelet makeup. At the same time, it still does raise the question of the fully grown beard. Plastic surgery. But Answer to anything. Plastic, sur- yeah, <laughs> plastic beard. <laughs> you know but it it is nice actually to have this bit longer version of when meeting loomis because i i always liked the scene that shows shows that loomis has finally retired and is ready to leave behind his battle with michael and get some kind of peace even if if it finally turns out that it is only temporarily, but still, I I do like it. I, I like seeing Bloom is at peace and, you know, yeah. enjoying a drink
0: with an old friend. Yeah, it was all nice and beautiful until Dr. Wynn actually comes out as the man in black. Yeah. Dr. Wynn should know that it's not wise to play Halloween pranks on him. There is also the added comment on Loomis that he had the stroke six years ago. I'm not sure if they are referring to the end of Halloween 5 where he falls on uh, Don Shanks or the Michael Myers in that movie, or is it something that happened after that is not related in any
1: way to the movie. Maybe it's an attempt to explain why Loomis was ready to finally retire and give up on his obsession with Michael Myers. But he also says
0: that after his stroke, everybody kind of tried to push him out of the sanitarium, but he just kept on going. But he had a change of no pun intended heart and decided to retire. Well, maybe he just reacted right to his stroke. <laughs> yeah. In the producer's cut, the Lavatory scene is much better as well, because it's more relaxed in its editing. In the theatrical cut, I believe Michael Myers is already on the second toilet door, pushing it open, and then we cut to Jamie right about there. that She's still sitting on the toilet seat, and that leaves about less than five seconds for... Jamie Lloyd and the baby to get out of the window without making any noise that Michael would notice. But whereas in you know, the producer's cut, he's still walking slowly
1: th- to the doors. Not, not all, only for Jamie to get out, but actually stash the baby and then get out. Yeah, yeah. That's some mad skills. That's, you know, what being head captured by, by the cult for six years does to you. And then there is the kind of a plot problem
0: that why are the man in black or the cult or Michael Myers not going through the entire route that Jamie Lloyd took that night and look for the baby because it would be so easy to find, I would imagine. But then again, this there's something wrong with this baby because at a strategic moment he is not crying. Even
1: the goddamn baby has read the script. Fuck. God man. damn it.
0: Jamie goes to the barn. She decides to have a nice sit on the hay and completely loses her grip on her surroundings because obviously it doesn't make any sense that Michael would now come and murder her. She just keeps sitting there and gets stabbed in in her back.
1: And this is the version where Jamie's corpse is left lying in the middle of the barn. And if we would come back to the Red Hot brand fire truck, making the symbol of Thorn into the hay. Now, this time, they would be cruising all over Jamie's body. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the effort of this cult man.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Before the breakfast scene, we have another scene where uh, Dr. Wynn and Dr. Loomis are discussing, I believe, in the sanitarium what they should do about the new information that they have received from a radio show. And Loomis says that he doesn't have any more enough strength to go through this cold shit alone. So he's asking for Dr. Win's help of all
1: people. Well, at the time, Loomis still was under the impression that Wynn's on his side and his trusty old friend. Yeah. Instead of obsessing over Michael Myers, Loomis really should have watched more cheap horror films. The moment when I believe Dr. Wynne's
0: secretary says that it will be wonderful to have you back at the sanitarium, then Dr. Loomis is doing this appreciative nod towards her. In the script it's more awkward where Dr. Wynne notices that Loomis is feeling very unpleasant about the fact that Dr. Wynne has discussed with uh, his secretary that Loomis is coming back and Dr. Loomis has still, as far as we know, not made any reference to such a thing that he would actually be returning to the facility as a chief administrator. So Dr. Will notices that this is awkward for him, and he immediately changes the topic to discuss more about Michael Myers. And then we got to the breakfast scene.
1: Where Michael Myers now needs a little child to do his killings for him.
0: Yep. The
1: Stomach Pounder
0: scene is extended. It's better and we get a little hearty laugh from Kara.
1: I enjoyed that. I enjoyed how this scene once again shows that Vin has some kind of a psychic link to Danny. Which is never explained how that is possible since they are not blood in any way. It's either a connection with the man in black or it's a connection
0: with Michael Myers, who has a tape recorder in his hand with
1: the speeches <laughs> of man in black when needed. But, you know, that does not explain all those kill your entire family for me nightmares that Danny is suffering. Yeah, well, you know, Dr. Wynn is
0: still working on the thesis and the study, so apparently there is some kind of magical powers
1: that you can get from this whatever it is thorn you lose your magical powers when you finally hand over your thesis (laughs) which is exactly why every university student always tries to push it to the last possible minute (laughs) yeah but this uh, hearty laugh from Kara gives kind
0: of a nice contrast to what's to follow next which is John Strode being an asshole for the entire family so once again yeah Yeah, it kind of it shows the whole spectrum of what is possible to happen in this house and how the characters feel about each other. It's, it's great. And the Kara Stroh's actor is really good here. I, I can see only one bastard in this house and getting slapped. Next added scene is when, um, Danny is about to go to school and, um, Kara is comforting Danny about what happened in the kitchen that, uh, I think she's saying that Don't worry, Grandfather is not able to hurt me, even though he actually just did. Or was it in the script, or is it in the producer's cut? Not sure. I'm confusing my versions.
1: It was in the producer's cut.
0: Okay. Next shot is Back to the House. Back at the House, where John Strode says that Kara Strode is no longer her daughter.
1: Well, you know, you have to have strong family values. Absolutely. And Kara did have a bastard. so...
0: There are some really good dialogue from Dr. Loomis in this cut that was left on the cutting room floor because of not releasing this version. Dr. Loomis sees Jamie on the stretchers. Dr. Wynn says that let them take care of her. And then the new sheriff in Haddonfield is apparently an asshole. Here we get to the interesting fact that the more Dr. Loomis helps this cursed town of Haddonfield the less the police are interested in helping him. And uh, probably the best dialogue from Dr. Loomis in this movie is here when he's saying that I suppose it was a ghost who did all this and I suppose the ghost
1: killed Jamie and however the line went. This is also the weird case once again in the franchise where Michael Myers fails to kill his target from a point black stab as the worst that happens to Jamie is that she ends up in coma from her meeting with Michael Myers.
0: Yeah. Then we get a
1: throwback to
0: original Halloween when Kara's throat is walking around the um campus area, I believe. She's startled by a, a teenager couple who is kissing and the girl is screaming. But there's some shitty camera work here, so I can understand why this was left alone. I mean, there is this uh, pan towards Kara from... ...behind her back, just when in the last shot she was shot from the front. (laughs) And uh, it just looks out of place and very
1: television-ish. It could, could be an attempt to recapture that looming presence of Michael Myers... ...and the film crew once again fucking it up. Pretty much, because nothing happens in that
0: scene. Then we get to the hospital reception where Dr. Wynn apparently gets a call to his beeper and leaves Donald Pleasant conveniently alone
1: and then we get Dr. Loomis and Tommy Doyle alone. This time the Loomis hanging around at the hospital premises actually finally makes some goddamn sense and is logical. And then again something that is not logical in any way is once again the hospital staff's reaction to Tommy Doyle and who's looking help for an injured baby. Yeah. Even the producer's cut version of this
0: is flawed, because I do not like how convenient it is that Dr. Wun moves away immediately when Tommy Doll is there and then Tommy Doll leaves and immediately
1: Dr. Wun comes back to Loomis. Yeah, well, uh, it's Haddonfield, the town of improbable odds. Indeed. Likewise,
0: the discussion between... Mrs. Strode and Dr. Loomis is extended. This is the perfect moment to discuss Joe Chapel Chapel's problem with Dr. Loomis scenes and the character. Because according to Chapel Chapel, Dr. Loomis is a boring character. So he decided to chop as much as possible of the dialogue that he thought was boring. Way to go! In memory of Donald Pleasance, it says in the end credits. (laughs) I mean, this guy is just... The guy is just cutting this guy who is basically the only redeeming quality of this goddamn shit show once again.
1: Yeah, the most trusted and most reliable actor on the entire goddamn franchise. The namestay for five films at this point. Yeah. Uh, And the one character that the fans have always demanded to come back and which eventually was deemed so important to the franchise that even at this late age of his lifetime, I mean, Donald Pleasence was really old during the filming of Halloween six. The franchise still was unable and uninterested on letting go of Donald presence and, as seen on the ending of this version, actually still tried to pave the way for, you know, more sequels with Dr. Loomis. So, yeah, way to go, you know. that That's the character that you should most definitely see as the extremely boring one and try to cut out of your film. Absolutely, and He wasn't particularly
0: old. He was 75, but he had some heart trouble. He had a heart operation after the initial shooting had ended, and uh, he died of the complications of the heart surgery, unfortunately. During the filming of Curse of Michael Myers, he, he was apparently sick, and you can tell that he's not in a very good health, or he sounds very... Old in his voice. Maybe it's the age, maybe it's uh, his current condition during the filming.
1: Then again, it was stated that Donald Pleasence was seemingly tired already during the filming of Halloween 5. Yeah. And he's in during Halloween 5, and you know, his performance in already in 5 has been said that that tiredness kind of already shows through. I think it was, yeah, it was Halloween 4. I think it was Dwight Little, the director of that
0: film, that said that in order to get the max performance, maximum strength out of Donald Pleasence in those scenes, the way to do that was to shoot as much as possible of his stuff in a certain amount of time and then, like... Give him a rest for the rest of the day so he will be again full of energy for those uh, critical hours for the next day.
1: Yeah, it was like uh, something like a couple of hours, maybe two or three hours that they mm-hmm. managed to get the maximum donut P- pleasance in each day. And then he had to go and rest for the remaining of the day already in Hall- Halloween fall. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some people at their seventy-five
0: they don't have any trouble at all. But apparently, he had some health problems. So, yeah,
1: it happens. It, it, unfortunately, it happens. Life is unfair in that way. Yeah. But still, uh, even with all that, as noble background and as noble package on from the North behalf. Oh basically everyone involved with Halloween movies and the whole series is still unwilling to let the man go and relieve the Sam Loomis character, which to me kind of a speaks volumes on how extremely important Sam Loomis is or was to the Halloween franchise. And then, you know, have Chapel coming off with his opinion that Loomis is the most boring boring aspect of the film. Kind of like, what franchise are you exactly filming here? Too many directors with, I
0: believe, huge egos took part of the so-called Thorn trilogy. Dwight Little is probably okay. He's an okay character. But this Dominique Othnan Girard, and this Joe Chappell guy, they looks like they had way too many wishes of their own, what they wanted to do with this series. I mean, you're doing a franchise, so you have to follow the logic and the main established logic of the franchise and not come up with your own shit with Thorn and Men in Black, like, what are you doing?
1: Yeah, but then again, you know, you are dealing with Established directors here with long running careers and many notable cinematic masterpieces under their belts yeah. before you know jumping on the Halloween franchise. So, yeah, all, all the best for Mustafa Akkad uh, on wherever he's on top of a
0: cloud, or how, how does it go in the Quran? But I think he was making a lot of mistakes with the series, and mostly Mustafa is to blame for many of the horrible decisions that they have made with the series. Case in point, Halloween Resurrection also, which we have to cover later on. Ah!
1: In Mustafa's defense, this time the Weinsteins got involved. Like Dominic Girard is completely Mustafa's fault. But Joe Chappell, in Chappell's case, it's divided blame. Everyone who has a producer's credit in this film is to be held accountable on what happened. For sure. If it's any consolation to you, I've heard that Harvey Weinstein will get his sentence in coming years. Hopefully. Uh, wasn't it like the <laughs>
0: Weinstein completely denied any involvement in those harassings? Unbelievable.
1: What a guy. Yeah. Com- uh, but then again, you know, at that situation, what can you do? Well, if I would be in his shoes, I wouldn't, you know, admit guilt either. Because that is straight out getting the sentence. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we are, we are dealing with the American justice system. So maybe yeah. cutting a deal. Admitting the guilt, and, you know, trying to cut a deal for a shorter sentence... Yeah, that might be the end game if it's still available. You know, just give a
0: couple of millions of dollars and that's it. That's how it seems to work in that country.
1: In in, this might be too publicized case, so he's going to land in some jail time. Yeah. The next notable
0: scene is the shooting of Jamie Lloyd in the hospital by the man in black. Ah, yeah, well... Even though, even when I was a teenager, I could not understand why they would kill basically the main character of this story and then again replace it with something else. Because goddammit, didn't we just learn anything from Halloween 5 where Rachel was killed in the first 10 to 15 minutes, replaced by this annoying character that we have not established from before at all and also had nothing really going for her. And now we're kind of repeating the same recipe in Halloween 6. Granted, the characters made for Halloween 6 are far more likable than the characters of Halloween 5, so there's that. And then, actually in the earlier treatments of the script, Jamie Lloyd was supposed to appear at the end of the movie, kind of being part of the gang, I believe when they escaped the hospital or something like that. But she was supposed to be there, revealed to be still very much alive.
1: But I I wouldn't be an uptight snob at a complete break if I wouldn't actually point out that the crew did most definitely learn their lesson from Halloween 5 because it's at the 56 minute mark when Jamie Lloyd gets killed. So so he, he, you know survived much longer than Rachel. There's that. Obviously that that, that was the problem with you know axing off Rachel in Halloween 5. You did it too soon. Yeah. Well, I get the whole that you want to make Michael Myers
0: and his friends so dangerous that even the characters that you care about the most, they are also possible to kill. But
1: you, you can't do that. I don't know. I, on the other hand, think that the shooting of Jamie is the best kill in the producer's cut.
0: It's a really pretty rude kill, just shooting somebody
1: in the head when they're sleeping. Uh, Yeah, uh, it doesn't work as a kill, but it kind of works in a sense that it, it, it kind of shows the stakes involved in this situation. It shows how far the actual cult is ready to stretch out its operation. In the theatrical cut... All the violence and the killing is left solely on Michael. So basically the cult does not openly commit acts of violence. They just outsource everything to Michael. But in here they show that the cult on its own is also ready to act violently and is a little player on the situation.
0: Yeah, the focus is uh, slightly different.
1: Yeah. Outside of that, you know, yeah, the scene really does not work. The kill is nothing special. You don't even see it. So if you would judge it by the core factor, it really is nothing. And killing Jamie Lloyd is kind of a boneheaded move, in my opinion, too. I would not have done it. Would I have been at the helm of this film. Yeah. But it it still shows one side more about the cult and how extremely the cult is ready to operate.
0: There is this dream sequence where we see again Jamie taken with a stretcher across the white corridors of Sanitarium and we see a shot where the man in black is holding his hands in the air and again he looks like he's Gliding, like... He looks like he's on some kind of rails. It looks the same to me... As when they snatched Jamie in... 1989. In the movie, the thorn symbol is represented as... uh, Representing evil and sickness... Which brings death to... Hundreds of thousands of people. And... This is directly from Tommy Doyle. So it must be accurate. So... According to Celtic legend... One child from each tribe was chosen to be inflected with the curse of Thorn. And this is Michael Myers we're talking about. And he continues, To offer the blood sacrifices to its next of kin on the night of Samhain or Samhain. The sacrifice of one family meant sparing the lives of an entire tribe. So, at this point we already know that Michael Myers is actually a saint out to save hundreds of thousands of people by sacrificing one person right if this it, it, if, if if this
1: nonsense is true exactly yeah well, once again the producers got does make some alterations in some added scenes but it's or basically no, it the doesn't. same thing
0: it's just adding yeah. even more background to this nonsense
1: no, it's, it's the goddamn director's cut scenes that add more to the nonsense, making the whole situation a little bit shadier. But. Which yeah, scene follow. in the director's cut? Uh, basically, the scene where Vyn uh, is giving Loomis the talk about how he wants to control some unnameable power. And wants to control, control the evil. Oh, yeah. Oh. Which in that scene, it gives kind of a sense that what the Count of Thorn is doing is it, trying to control the evil and the power. But that scene is absent in the theatrical version, and the Thorn's aims and goals are never made clear. So we have to go with what. Tommy says about about the whole symbol of Thorn and this blood sacrifice and saving the tribe. So in, in that sense, yeah, Michael Myers is the saint and the God of Thorn basically are the good guys trying to save the whole tribe by giving this one blood sacrifice.
0: Exactly. If it is true then, in fact, Dr. Loomis is the antagonist of this film.
1: Yeah, and basically, at the end, when Tommy and the company foil the Thorns plans, they basically lead into a... I don't know if it's a mass murder, a mass genocide. It's hard to say, since the limits of what is the tribe in this scenario... It's never explained. So you don't know who dies and how many people are going to die because the sacrifice is cancelled at the end of the film. But, you know, it, it could be the entire Haddonfield. It could be the population of United States.
0: I'm going by that it could be some kind of a ancient understanding of some ancient tribe. So it could be like a long lost tribe so many of the members of the tribe are now and their descendants are around the world so it could be probably anyone
1: <laughs> yeah so th- this could be 25 percent of earth's population in the worst case scenario it, it depends on you know how ancient this tribe is right yeah it could be half of the planet yeah so yeah hey good thing stopping that thorn count <laughs> nice one
0: And he continues... The druids were also great mathematicians, blah blah blah, and astronomers. The thorn symbol is actually a constellation that appears from time to time on Halloween night. Whenever it appears, he appears. Wow, so we're basically destroying the simplicity of all the parts of the Halloween franchise. The simplicity of the original Halloween, if you follow this logic is then completely destroyed. And now, whenever you want to see the first Halloween, you are kind of... Well, you could look at it through the thorn-cult eyes and just think that he escapes in 1978, really, from this hospital just to be this nice guy who tries to sacrifice Laurie Strode that he can uh, save uh, hundreds of thousands of millions or billions of people. But... At the same time, he kind of is having fun and still killing random people uh, during that night.
1: Not only that, but actually you are destroying how astronomy and constellations work. Yes, also. Because if you follow this logic, in that case, the constellation would have appeared on the night of the first two Halloween movies, since they go back to back. Yeah, okay. Then there would be 10-year gap without Mm -hmm. the constellation. Mm -hmm. Then the constellation would appear right next year by Halloween 5. And then there would be 6-year gap, and it would appear once again during Halloween 6.
0: Well, it's because Dr. Wyn can control with his cult the location and the rolling speed of planet
1: Earth. It must be because the star constellation has read the script and knows when it's meant to appear. That always works. Yep. Thank God we have this Thor bullshit here. Or, or
0: you know, is it is it possible that a constellation appears in kind of nonsensical cycles? It's in this movie. Well, yeah, in this movie for sure. But, okay, well... If it appears in Halloween 4 and Halloween 5, meaning 1988 and 1989, then that kind of suggests that if we follow like a logical constellation appearance a schedule, let's say, or what would probably be the logical schedule. I'm not an astronomer, so take that into account. But this suggests that this constellation probably appears every single fucking Halloween night and we just don't know of the other adventures of Michael Myers in these off-screen years. That's my explanation. Uh,
1: then again, you know, uh, also that couldn't completely hold hold the water because if we go with the logic that Michael, which the movie seems to suggest that Michael Myers was kind of a mark for Thor and from the beginning since he was a child. Yeah. Since... Mrs. Blankenship makes the notion that as a child, Michael heard the voice and that drove him to kill his sister. Right. So basically, Michael is tied into the thorn coat and the constellation. And voice. Since he was six. And then r- right after that, he gets locked up until he's 18. 21. So 21. Yeah, so he's been 15 years locked up in Smith's Grove. Yeah. So basically, during those 15 years, he really can't have had any adventures. So the Constellation, it just couldn't have appeared during those 15 years. Because it would fuck up the entire thing in that case. Because there would be the Constellation and Michael Myers couldn't do jack shit because he's locked up. Or maybe, just maybe, Dr. Wynn let him
0: out on every Halloween night secretly uh, from the sanitarium to, I don't know, maybe they went to Burger King and there were some unexplained deaths and then they came back to the sanitarium.
1: And I already knew that you would try to make that argument and I would counter it by stating that Dr. Loomis would never have kind of a missed that happening continuously for 15 fucking years, not by the Judging by how extremely tied up with Michael Myers and this notion of Michael being pure evil, he was already in Halloween 1. Yeah, that's... Uh... I'm sure that as fuck that Ma- Loomis was paying extra close attention on My- to Michael on every single fucking Halloween that Michael spent in Smith's Grove. Unless he was drugged by Dr. Wynn every Halloween night. At which point he kind of would have to notice that he starts to have these mysterious headaches and bumps in the head and blackouts every single fucking Halloween for the past 15 years. At which point he most likely would just go and check the security cameras that they must have in a goddamn mental asylum meant for criminally insane.
0: So this means that... Dr. Loomis is in fact brainwashed by the cult th- of Thorn to not be able to remember these events every single freaking Halloween and therefore not making sure that the security tapes are looking good.
1: Well, that kind of would be the only possible explanation how, how Michael would have yearly adventures with Dr. Wynn for all those 15 fucking years. I'm really
0: happy, Henrik, that we are finally cracking down Like, what this movie is about.
1: Yeah, thank God, you know. Maybe we should, you know, give a call at this point, you know, to Daniel Farant and, you know, just let him know that we finally cracked this. <laughs> <laughs> and we have still avoided talking about the biggest goddamn sticking point of this version. And i I guess we are at the moment of the film when we finally have to address this issue. Since this is. You already mentioned that dream sequence about Jamie. And through that sequence we finally get to the whole point of Jamie being raped at the hands of the Thorncoat. Which explains the baby and it explains the father. Of the said baby. Pretty much. Yeah. We, we are not yet at the point where the rapist is revealed. But we are at the point where the rape happens. And
0: um, this begs the question, or maybe it doesn't, but maybe there should be some kind of a indication or maybe some uh, hesitation on Jamie's part For her feelings towards this baby. Because the father happens to be her uncle. The script establishes that the midwife is called Mary. First of all. And then Jamie says. Mary. Mother of God. Please make it stop. Please don't let it be born. She calls it it. And asks it not to be born. That's interesting.
1: Yeah the whole rape plotline is, it's kind of the f- f- worst thing we have gotten in this franchise at this point. It is. It's in fact so unbelievable that it took a
0: bit of convincing for some fans to really believe that this is the source of the baby's seed. Yeah. Like, it's just so out there. Like what the hell is going on? It's, it's like... <sighs> like, Why? Were they even yeah. like? were they even realizing what they were writing here? Like, I think it's never. It's only explained by Kara in case Kara is correct when she is about to be, I believe, raped by Michael, or something.
1: Yeah, because you know one rape scene is not enough for, for your fucking movie. Yeah. Okay. So,
0: wh- what is going on there? So, she's on the altar. Let's assume she's about to be raped. then, what was the point of raping Jamie, and what is now the point of the new raping, and how is Danny related to all of this? So let's say this is another ritual for same kind of stuff. they have to kill Stephen the baby they have to kill the baby of the would be baby of Kara,
1: and then Danny would be the next killer i'm I think I'm they're kind of continuing the plotline, which they have to kill off completely for the ritual to work. Like that's what the cult is doing here with all this fucking rape. And so, so, so the logic does not work in that sense. And there is no point, or I see no explanation why you would have to, or why you would introduce rape as an element in this movie, or why you would have incest in this movie? And this begs the question,
0: how is the VR Ouija script worse than this one? What was going through Mustafa's head when he said and decided that, yes, this is the script with which we go, where Michael Myers is having sex with Jamie Lloyd to make a baby, to sacrifice it. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess we have made our point to exhaustion. Because I I came to this episode, like, really prepped that I want to understand what is going on to fully kind of go through all the layers of the film. We've made so many wonderful excuses so far for this film. But this Gara Strode stuff, there may be even, like, a semi-legitimate explanation for all of this crap just now I
1: cannot think of it but yeah this is really a baffling plot point and I myself had even forgotten the, this whole rape happens in Halloween 6 yeah uh, it, it just kind of makes me angry you know for, for many reasons first is that rape is not a subject that you should kind of a handle this carelessly where you just drop it off. Kind of a like, well, rape is a crime that happens to women and that is the excuse why we are pulling the, the s- distant here and then adding incest. And according to the script, Jamie is
0: 16 years old in this film.
1: Oh my fucking God. Yeah. I hadn't even done the fucking math. I think, uh,
0: does the math even in this movie add up? I think she should be, well, in Halloween 5... I Dr. mean, Loom- she's
1: not that old in Halloween 5. Halloween
0: 5, Dr. Loomis is talking about the coffin of a nine-year-old girl, but I'm not sure how old the character is supposed to be, but at, at its youngest, 15, let's say, in this film.
1: Yeah, so, so yeah, you... Yeah, so now we're adding fucking pedophilia into the mix. A Weinstein production.
0: Mm, Yeah,
1: also. Uh,
0: Producer Scott makes it so that Sims is not killed in his own van, but somehow by magic accident, because maybe Michael Myers has changed the position of the vans, now Sims is going to the wrong van, which says Smithscrow, Warren County Sanitarium. Goes there, then I guess he's a little confused what he has done. He's in the wrong van, and Michael Myers attacks him and gets him. Then there is this total uh, exposition. There is this camera that moves solely for the purpose to show the audience that this is not the correct van. The camera
1: moves to the other van to show that it's there, and it's awkward. And it still does not explain at all why the hell Michael Myers did all the walking from his house to the fair to kill the radio DJ and then back to his house. Don't even try to understand this movie anymore. Also another change that I did not personally care for in the producer's cut relating to the DJ is the mummy training red scene. Yeah, because Were they singing. Yeah, exactly because of the singing. I, I felt it was way more eerie and atmospheric at the, in the theatrical cut, where the little girl is simply kind of a stating that it's raining. And here at the producer's cut, she's singing that it's raining, it's raining red. And for me, kind of a steal something. Like that was my favorite scene. In the theatrical cut. Oh. Wow. Uh, simply because I felt that there, there was this quite tense, pizzeria Gothic atmosphere from the moment there is that panning shot of Danny walking at the fair and then hearing the girl and walking towards her and finally seeing the radio DJ hanged into the tree and it's kind of a combination of all these elements that made the scene work so well for me and now here they change the little girl's audio not much but a bit and it still something of the atmosphere for me the scene where beth is getting
0: stabbed is void of the theatrical cuts MTV flash uh, slow motion stuff, and it's just normally showed that she
1: is getting stabbed without all those added effects. Yeah, it's al- much It's better. almost like somebody was filming a suspense movie. Yeah, that is okay. It's, uh, be- uh, yeah, Beth's death scene is way better in the producer's cut without that MTV flash cut nonsense added to it. There is different dialogue when
0: Kara comes to pick up Danny from the Strode house, from the Strode Myers house. In producer's cut the line is Danny, come to mommy. This doesn't make as much sense as in the theatrical cut where the line is something along the lines of Danny, stay right there. Mummy is coming to get you. So Danny would be in danger if he would start stepping on Michael Myers right there. It's better that mommy comes to get him. But
1: then again, you know, it shows brain powers from the Kara's side that she automatically recognizes the place of danger, which is Michael Myers laying on the floor and is making the logical deduction there and letting her son kind of uh, take the risk. Yeah, and then we follow with the chase scene to
0: the Blankenship residence. In producer's cut, Michael is left very far from the door, as in, I feel there is much less suspense here than in the uh, theatrical cut where Michael actually gets to the doorstep even too close, but uh, you know, they are saved
1: by the magic of editing, so Cara and Danny are fine. God bless the editing. Yeah. It has pretty much saved Or the tractors at some point in this franchise. Kara jumps out of the window. And we still don't see the moment when the car, trucks, Loomis and Danny. We don't, but hey, at least in Producer's Cut there is this
0: scene in between those shots. Where Kara is now in the cult basement underworld. Surrounded by candles tied up. And then it continues to the we have been drugged nonsense. Yeah, that's better. There's more dialogue when Dr. Loomis comes to the office of Dr. Wynn. He's talking more nonsense about the
1: Thorn cult. At least in here at Producer's Cut, the cult finally gets some kind of explanation of its goals and modus operandi. Yeah. So in that sense... The cult is handled a bit better in a producer's cut if you do not count in incest and underage rape. Also, one scene which makes much more sense
0: is when Tommy Doyle is told by Dr. Loomis to wait in the corridor for him when he would come out from Dr. Wynn's office. Well, he doesn't at that point. But the reason why Tommy leaves is he's following this one cult member walking around the corridors. In the theatrical cut, he just leaves Loom is there. And we get to the ceremony where Danny is watching over when her mother is tied up and Dr. Wynne is telling, please Danny, kill for him. So this is, I suppose, supposed to be like the transfer of power from Michael Myers to Danny.
1: Or something. The ritual never makes any sense. No, not quite. No. And then
0: Kara interrupts the ceremony by saying that uh, isn't the baby
1: yours, Michael, and that you can stop it. Yeah. Kara recognizes that Michael is the baby's father by the perfect blue of his eyes, which she can't see behind the mask. Mother's instinct. Or simply the script once again being read. Maybe it's the script constellation like the Thor symbol is actually the script it, it, that would explain so much in this goddamn movie
0: yeah. if anything I like some of the shots of the white hallways Dr. Loomis and Tommy Doyle walking on the corridors and the camera doing occasionally this depth of field effects and just the contrast between the colors of the
1: actors against the white background I like it. I like the scene where Danny, when they are escaping the asylum and they come to the locked gate where Danny pushes random buttons on a number code keypad is and is cursing that it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, I have to watch that. Oh, yeah. It's not yep. working. <laughs> <laughs> it's not working. Well, of course not, you fucking idiot. <laughs>
0: Holy crap! Well, uh, Tommy. Do- for Tommy Doll's defense, he must have forgotten that he doesn't have the key card in the script. It's Doctor Loomis. So, in the movie, his key card is the pistol.
1: Yeah, that is known to open up all those fancy-ass number code keypads. <laughs> then
0: Tommy proceeds to do the <sighs> somehow walks.
1: shit on the floor. <laughs>
0: Weird shit on the floor. That's a good way to describe it. So rocks are also part of the <laughs> Thorn cult. And the rocks are magical in power and they stop. Michael Myers on his tracks lets Tommy and the gang go. <laughs> and apparently just saying the magic word Sam Samhain to Michael is enough to totally put him on a power off.
1: Yeah. Like th- this, this is the guy who has been shot knows many how times. He has been burned. He has been tried to be exploded with dynamite. And you know, the one thing, the one weakness he has, the thing that stops him is some rocks on the floor.
0: And Dr. Wynne's following words kind of describe this madness in the perfect way. He says to Michael, Michael, what have they done to you?
1: Yeah, but uh, what do you think? How did the exchange go before Tommy and Loomis started their trip to the asylum? Like after they have noticed that they have been drugged and before they finally make their leave for the asylum and the final confrontation. Do you think that Loomis said something like, we must head to the evil cult slayer? Everybody grab whatever weapons you have. I bring my gun. And then Tommy's, and I bring my sack of mysterious Michael myers stopping runes. Who knows, you know, maybe come in handy.
0: Yeah, well, now that you mentioned <laughs> it, the ending in the script is quite different once again. I don't know if we have time for our little story time here. So... Go ahead. All right. Quote begins. <sighs> the shape drops Tommy on the floor, then turns toward Kara and the children. Kara and Danny rattle the cage door. The shape closes in. Kara says, Michael, fight the voice! It doesn't have power over you anymore! The shape stops, head tilted listening to her, looking down at the baby in her arms. Then a shadowy figure in a black hat and duster rises out of the smoke-filled darkness, the stranger, Dr. Wynn! Exclamation mark. Wynn says, Kill them, Michael! Kill them now! The shape looks at Wynn, then back at Kara, moving on her. Lumi says, Michael, no! <laughs> Wynne gasps as Lumi appears on the opposite side of the cage. He throws open the door. Danny flies past him. Kara pulls Tommy over the threshold just as he comes to. Lumi slams the door on the shape, trapping it inside. Lumi says, Go, Tommy! Get them out of here! Tommy says, He'll kill you! Lumi says, Watch over them. Take them someplace safe, where he'll never find them. Loomis and Tommy share a long exchange. Then Tommy slowly backs away. (laughs) The shape seems to watch Kara as Tommy leads her with the baby and Danny through the exit. Loomis steps inside the cage with the shape. Win watches from the opposite side. The shape now stands between Loomis and Win. Loomis says, Let it be over, Michael. This time let it finally end. Take me. Let me be your final sacrifice. Win says, for you, Sam, it's only the beginning. The shape descends on Loomis. His scream echoes through the hollow halls as we cut to the exterior of Sanitarium nighttime. Tommy races with Kara and Danny toward the white Sanitarium van. He stops, looking back at the cold, dark Sanitarium. Then he has the baby in his arms. Tommy says, I promised I wouldn't let anything happen to you, Kyle. Tommy hands Kara the baby, climbs into the van and starts the engine. Kara opens the passenger door and helps Danny inside. Interior van. Kara looks at Tommy, her face a mask of sadness and fear. Um. Kara says, Where will we go? Tommy says, As far away from Hadamfeld as we can. And then exterior sanitarium. We see Danny's glazed staring eyes as the van rambles off down the long road toward the gates of the sanitarium. Slow dissolve to interior security cage night. Through wisps of clearing smoke, we find Loomis lying motionlessly on the floor. Beside him lies the shape. The cage door stands open. Win is gone! Slowly Loomis awakens. His expression fills with shock and fear as he takes in the lifeless form of the shape. Loomis says, It's over, Michael. It's finally over. Loomis reaches towards the shape ever so slowly. The shape lunges, grabbing Loomis's hand. Loomis uses his free hand to pull off the mask, revealing win! Loomis' eyes fill with dread and unspeakable <laughs> horror. Wun grips Loomis' hand tightly, smiling as he looks deep into his eyes. Wynne says, He's gone! The evil is gone! Wun releases his grip. Loomis staggers, looking down in shock at his own hand, haunted by great gales of maniacal laughter as he stumbles off down the hall. Interior Wun's office. Loomis stumbles through, rushes over to the wet bar, throwing glasses and bottles aside, his breath shallow, face bedded with sweat, eyes terrified. He runs the water in the sink, splashing his face, furiously scrubbing his hand, as if trying to wash something burning, something terribly painful from his skin. Finally, Loomis turns off the water and looks up at his deplorable reflection in the mirror, raising up his left hand, his wrist branded with the mark of thorn. Wind's dissonant laughter trails away into Loomis's scream of utter rage and despair. Dissolved to interior van night. Tommy drives, not seeing anything, Kara beside him, staring numbly. Danny asleep on her lap, the baby in her arms. Tommy's POV. A sign up ahead, glowing salvation. Harding County Transit, exterior bus depot. The van pulls into the deserted, rain-swept parking lot. Cut to interior bus depot night. Ragged and bone-weary, Kara and Tommy shamble inside with the children. Empty benches, blank signboard. The low hum of vending machines, completely devoid of life. Tommy moves toward the ticket counter, a sign left by the attendant... Back in 20. Kara carries the baby Danny following as she disappears through the door, marked Ladies Room. Tommy goes to the old-fashioned phone booth, picks up the receiver and immediately dials 911. Voice says, filtered over phone, You have reached the Haddonfield Emergency Services. Due to severe weather conditions, all circuits are momentarily busy. If this is not an emergency, please dial directly. Tommy slams the receiver down. Suddenly he becomes aware of a radio program. Piped in over ancient loudspeakers. Barry Sims voiceover. So they're trying to kill you and your baby, don't tell me. Your name also happens to be Rosemary. Jamie's voiceover. No, please listen, they're coming. Coming from me and my baby. Barry Sims, come on sweetheart, what is this, who's coming? It's Michael, Michael Myers. Suddenly Tommy reacts to the sound of a bone-chilling scream. Jamie's words seem to replay themselves. In a continuous loop as Tommy rushes forward dreamlike, pushing right through the ladies' room door. Interior ladies' room. Empty, dark, silent. Tommy moves along the row of of stalls, opening each one. No one inside. Jamie's voice haunts him, still echoing in the background. He reaches the final stall, pushes to open the door. Tommy's POV, slumped on the floor, her throat slit, is Kara, the mark of thorn drawn with her blood on the wall. Danny stands looking down at his mother with the darkest eyes we have ever seen, the devil's eyes. His hands are covered in blood. A cold gust of wind blows through the open window. The baby is gone. Angle on Tommy, letting out a scream of unimaginable horror, drowned out by the sound of police sirens rising in the distance as we cut to a series of shots, the sounds of the shape heavy muffled breathing getting louder and louder, the Halloween theme rises unrelenting unstoppable as we see the darkened sanitarium, the devastated college campus, the empty solitary street of Haddonfield, the Myers House, dark, empty, for sale by Strode Real Estate. A baby's shrill cry keens and whimpers in the night as we move in on a glowing, grinning jack-o'-lantern. The wind causes the candle to blow out, leaving us in darkness as we fade to black. Roll final credits. And then, for those who remain in their seats until the lights go up, cut to exterior Myers' house. A figure wearing winds, black duster and hat, a pair of familiar muddy work boots on his feet, Steps shockingly into frame, breathing heavily through a Halloween mask. Then he seems to disappear again into the darkness like a figment of our imagination. The end. Yay.
1: So, it's a shit show. Yeah, there is no good version of this fucking film. (laughs) We have tried to look for it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, we 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 have done basically anything except you know landed ourselves in some dimly lit ancient temple where there could be some kind of a formidable treasure or something like that at the end of it. Yeah, I mean hopeless. Yep, yep. Oh, we
0: have to cover the end of producer's cut. We. <sighs> Loomis goes back to the hotel. Loomis goes back to the hospital for his unfinished business, which is here revealed to be as Dr. Loomis going to the apparent body of Mike Myers or his laying, well, body. But it's revealed to be Dr. Wynn under the mask, saying to the audience that uh, the curse has apparently now magically been probably, I don't know, moved from him to no one at this point. But when Dr. Wynn touches Dr. Loomis' hand, the curse is given
1: to him. Or something. Something. Like like the symbol of the thorn coat just appears in the Loomis' arm with yeah. no no explanation at all. So fucking hell.
0: Huh? Way to make a simple scary movie into a total shit show.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't actually believe myself saying this, but the ending of the theatrical cut made more goddamn sense.
0: If we are trying to make excuses and try to make this make sense in some kind of universe in this movie, maybe Michael Myers grabbed the arm of Dr. Woon, passed the (laughs) curse on him, and then Dr. Woon, because he's dying on the floor, apparently he's transferring it to Dr. Loomis, who doesn't have many years for him either and now he's the new
1: Michael Myers or something like that or you know I, I took it that he's supposed to become the caretaker of Michael Myers which also does not make that much sense since in in this verse and in the producer's cut Michael Myers is kind of a presented as a puppet of the cult so Dr. Loomis would not be as much uh, as a caretaker for Michael, but he's controlling master? Yeah, who knows? There's one continuity problem as well, because
0: this uh, whole scene is suggesting that they have swapped clothes, except the shoes. Dr. Wynn still has the shoes of Michael, but the next shot kind of makes the case that he has the Michael Myers shoes now. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, so it does. The shoes completely kind of a uh, switch owners. And the final shot is of the
0: Myers residence. And we cut to the pumpkin and we fade to black. In memory of Donald Pleasance.
1: Yeah, what a send-off. <sighs>
0: yeah, Halloween H2O, in fact, commemorates Donald Pleasance in the end credits as well. Definitely a better film to do that with. But then again, they fuck up the spelling of Donald Pleasence. They <laughs> <laughs> so just can't, can't get it right.
1: You know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I, I realized Why, why the
1: fuck w- are we fans of the franchise? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Honestly, at least at this grown and wise age, I am a fan of Halloween 1. And Halloween too, and that's where it ends for me.
1: Yeah, well, I I can still stre- stretch it out for Halloween for. Yeah, okay, that's being very kind and generous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> God, I I don't know. I mean, I I haven't watched Age Twenty in years, so I have fond memories of that one. No, so maybe maybe that. Maybe those
0: memories are not so fond when you put it in the context of. All the films that have taken place and how much this H2O is mimicking the old
1: stuff. Well, basically, it's just Halloween 1 and 2. Maybe I can really appreciate it after, you know, taking uh, these, these films taking the franchise to a new and unexplored territories. Yeah. Needless to say, it was time to push
0: the reset button for the series and the next one Has nothing to do with the Thorn Cult. And we are back to the original timeline of Halloween 1 and 2. But in the meanwhile, let's still talk about the music of this film. Because it's completely different in these two versions. The theatrical cut is more guitar-driven. The music is better timed, better used, better controlled in the theatrical cut. In the producer's cut, it seems like it was just laid on top of their... They didn't think it through that well. Because, for example, I remember the lavatory scene and the bus depot. And the music just didn't work at all. It was noticeably bad and didn't fit the scene. So, yeah. If I would have to make a new cut of this film, it would be a combination of these two cuts. In some way. Without the guitar, Halloween theme.
1: Yeah, well, you know, be my guest. This is unsalvageable.
0: This is unsalvageable. I have no interest of making any of my like own version of this. No way. Thanks.
1: But you know, to to follow the the free metaphor from the uh, from our previous episode, I still have to make the case that this Halloween six still might not be the moment when the franchise hits the ground, but. Like, we, no. we are still at the free fall. If I remember correctly, there is still even worse movie coming at our direction in this in this forsaken franchise.
0: After Halloween Four, the series was totally salvageable,
1: but they did what they did, and yeah, but still, yeah, uh, yeah, we are we are still in the free fall with Halloween Six. But Halloween Six is the point where you you can see the ground at this point. You are so close to hitting the ground that you already see it. Halloween 6 is kind of a, the last few moments before the sudden stop. Halloween 6 was shown to test crowds
0: apparently for kids around the age of 14 for some reason even though this is an R-rated movie and one of the kids said after the showing that he didn't like at all That how Donald Pleasence's character Sam Lewis was treated in the ending. The way the information was presented was that due to this one kid or so, the movie went back to reshoots and they completely redid the ending in a way. Still that comment doesn't justify why they made so many of the reshoots. So I'm left scratching my head a bit with that. I suppose the... uh, They wanted to reduce the whole cult thing in the final cut, but they couldn't quite get rid of all of it.
1: Yeah, or maybe they wanted to introduce more Michael Myers. Because that's kind of the trade-off you get with these two versions of Halloween 6. The theatrical cut has more Michael Myers in it, and the producer's cut has more Sam Loomis some more
0: artistic or technical observation from this film the halloween 6 is more colorful has more colors in it than halloween 5 halloween 5 is really dark i mean i don't know if it's a good good or a bad thing but this movie looks different in the color grading tone good execution of lighting and some blue light is seen in this film shooting it's kind of suspect at some points the movie uh, is actually Pretty cohesive in the producer's cut like I said, within its own nonsense universe well it
1: does feel more of more like an actual movie than yeah.
0: the theatrical cut suppose the theatrical cut was also kind of trying to make all the druid stuff be more up to interpretation, but by trying that they
1: made the movie make no sense whatsoever yeah, it's kind of a the situation where you can't. Just haphazardly start to cut off and remove kind of a plot elements that are meant to be major in the script and the story that has originally been done. And that haphazard style of removing parts is something that is to be seen in the theatrical cut.
0: Yeah, it is. And um, finally, the movie came out. Premiere and the response... Well, the critical reception. The film has uh, 6% approval, which is not really an approval. On the internet review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes. And on Metacritic, the film holds uh, 10 out of 100 points based on 13 reviews. Signifying as overwhelming dislike. Uh, Daniel Kimmel of Variety called the film Tired, Run of the Mill. And then there is Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle, he said the film lacked suspense and not even the presence of the late, gloriously histrionic Donald Pleasence can liven things up, and said the movie is bland, deadening, and by far the worst in the series. Stephen Holden of the New York Times called the film script impossibly convoluted. Agreed. (laughs) Shock effects are applied with such ham-fisted regularity that they quickly backfire. Yeah, there's always this metallic clang, clang, clang when they're doing the jump scares. That's me talking right now. Uh, Joss Hartle of the Seattle Times criticized the film's conventionality and said that instead of sending up the current glut of serial killer movies, the filmmakers trot out the old slasher tactics. Hmm. Well, I haven't seen this gold shit before, so that's one. Jack Matthews of the Los Angeles Times similarly criticized the film's lack of originality. Well, I wouldn't say that. It's really an original shit show. <clears throat> he compared it negatively to its predecessors. Well, undoubtedly. Richard Harrington of the Washington Post also criticized the script and said that while director Chapel Chapel and writer Daniel France took advantage of a clearance sale at the Horror Cliche Emporium, they forgot to stop in at Plots R Us. <laughs> <laughs> The the Time Out London film guide uh, Said that the film is Competently engineered shock moments Jollied along by a jazzed up version Of John Carpenter's original electronic score Slicker than crude oil And just as unattractive Dr. Terence Wynn was cast Because of his performance in Lethal Weapon 1987
1: Well Yeah, heard about that one
0: And originally the fans wanted Christopher Lee for the role, which would have been a mistake because I think he's too well-known actor. I think we only need Donald Pleasance's presence. Dennis Richards was auditioned for the part of Beth. I wonder if she would have gone like nude in the scene. That's just the pervert old me, of course, asking these questions. What's your favorite quote in this movie? Any idea? I
1: like the uh, two old friends and new beginnings. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, it I, is also my favorite scene, uh, the producer Yeah, when visiting Loomis.
0: I, once again, like all the Dr. Loomis's very emotional quotes, like when he's walking down the, the sanitarium hallway and saying to himself, when, <laughs> when he's explaining Michael Myers to Mrs. Strode. the only part that I remember right now from that is his his rage! Well, the film opened to a respectable 7.3 million on September 29, 1995 coming in second to New Line's uh, serial killer thriller called Seven. Seven million opening and uh, the film went on to gather as much as 15 million so still leaving the Effort quite lackluster, I would say.
1: From this franchise,
0: yeah, yeah. The Halloween Five was already a shit show at the box office, and um, this is well, looks to be slightly better, but not so much. Let me see. Five million budget estimated gross USA, fifteen million. Okay, let's go with that statistic, and then compare to Halloween Five. Halloween Five budget was estimated three million, and gross USA was. Actually,
1: 11.6 million. So, basically, Halloween 5 managed to pull off a bigger stake. Well, Halloween 5 is always
0: said to be the worst performing movie in the entire franchise. So, what the statistics are not taking into account here is the international success. So, maybe that's the thing. But even internationally, Halloween 6 got a really small exposure... For example, in Finland, it, it never got its
1: premiere. It was released in a handful of countries. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you really want to study the numbers and find reasons how Halloween 5 would still perform worse than Halloween 6, I would say that the counting in the infla- inflation would be what we should be looking at and mm. kind of mm. matching the box office take into that. Yeah. There's also that. Halloween 6 made its estimated budget back uh, three times fold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Halloween 5 managed to get it almost four times. Would you recommend Halloween 6, the producer's cut? No. Me neither. Yeah. If, if you would have to choose, you know, between... Producers and directors cut, or the theatrical cut, which one would you take to get the hard answers? Yeah. There are problems
0: with both, but at the end of the day, at least the producers cut gives a more sensical ending, whereas I feel the theatrical does not even have a proper ending. It's just some botched editing and provides nothing for the viewer. So I go with the producers cut.
1: Yeah, um... I, on the other, other hand, don't completely know. I mean, l- like I said, producer's cut is more of a movie. Mm. But it comes with the whole uncle, dad, Mikey thing. I don't know. Maybe I would pick the theatrical cut. Even though as a movie it is lackluster, but at least it it cuts off the rape. Yeah.
0: It's left to be assumed that Jamie Lloyd had a beautiful relationship
1: in the underground <laughs> cellars, and uh, or fuck it, you know. No, I I think the producers got to. I watched too much oh. exploitation movies, you know. To I, I actually try to get a moral high ground here. <laughs> okay. Well, it's safe
0: to say that the Halloween series really went completely astray. There is no way to continue from here. Halloween series went off the balustrade completely, and we are left to kind of reboot the whole idea, get to the roots of what Halloween was about, or slightly so. That's what we are going to face next with Halloween H2O, when Jamie Lee Curtis triumphantly returns for her role to save the series, at least for a short moment.
1: Yeah, until next time. Yeah, see you then.